once I see that the device works properly, they'll release me. I very much doubt it. You see, before you reactivated it, I reversed the polarity of the neutron flow. Hello and welcome to Reversing Polarity, a Doctor Who fan cast, hosted by two non-binary people who, as we always say, firmly believe that Doctor Who is the gayest show on television. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself, my lovely co-host? I absolutely would. Um, I'm Aim. my pronouns are they, them, and I am a writer, enthusiast, sometimes science communicator, among various other hats. I just want to say that I got that intro in one. Didn't have I'm really proud it. of you. Thank you. Uh, I'm Rosie, my pronouns are also they, them. I am a teacher in the supply cohort, so my year has started off great. Um, <laughs> and... There's nothing we love more than uncertainty. Yes, and as I say yeah. every time, I am very, very interested in Doctor Who. I love Doctor Who so much, which is why we're making a podcast about it. <laughs> this episode, we are doing the third Doctor story, The Mutants, which mm-hmm. let's get this out in front. We both really liked it. <laughs> Had, a great time. Had a great time. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, that may be contrary. We'll discuss that later. So uh, what what do you know previously about three and joe or just the third doctor era watched quite a lot of third doctor this year i've really enjoyed the pacing of his stories his characterization i adore the unit family so i've watched quite a lot of three and joe i think is the companion who's grown on me the most i'm just so fond of her very protective yeah (laughs) joe gets such a bad rap because obviously she comes after she comes after liz and liz is a great companion like liz is top tier liz is top tier joe is also top tier but because they're so different and clearly she was brought in because liz was threatening the doctor's masculinity or whatever um (laughs) but i think joe's great on her own my previous knowledge of this serial as i mentioned in the last episode the first doctor who i ever watched was i believe terror of the autons age four it was in black and white i remember that very specifically because i think that was before they'd done the color restoration oh wow odd thing to know because obviously it would have been on vhs because we are ancient compared to some people (laughs) and very young compared to some people on gallifrey base I really, really like the third Doctor. He's not my favourite. I think I started off watching Spearhead from Space at one point. That was like the first time I consciously watched the third Doctor. And it's such an odd serial to introduce yourself to I've him with. I think I've seen that one. Which is strange because it's his first serial. But he spends so much of it like at one point he's just obsessed with getting a pair of shoes. Oh, it's his first one. And then he like, like, yes, I have he, seen that one. It's brilliant. <laughs> he rolls over. He's like, shoes shoes he is fantastic his post-regeneration energy yeah. is chaotic yeah, it's really good i'm just here for my... i was like the bit where he has like a shower and yeah. sings in the shower yeah. for a while it's great i was like eight at the time so i didn't really get it and i think <laughs> it's a six-parter so it wasn't great for my attention span yeah. at the time but he is my mom's favorite he is he is her doctor so we have the most we had the most of those on dvd when the dvds started yes. coming out so i have a lot of affection for three i think i need to watch more of him because when I was co- sort of getting back into Doctor Who, I basically watched, I think, Inferno, and then I just decided to watch a bunch of other Doctors, and I never came back to it, which is insane, because Inferno is so good. I love Inferno. God, I, I am obsessed with it. There's a lot of Third Doctor stories I'm really looking forward to. Um, I think The Demons yes. is a personal favourite Oh, of mine. I love The Demons. It's also my boss's favourite episode, so we bonded over it. 
That's our chronology of the serial. We're going to jump straight into the recap. The Time Lords send the Doctor and Joe on a mission to deliver a sealed message pod to an unknown party aboard a sky base orbiting the planet Solos in the 30th century. They're caught quickly in a power struggle between the cruel Marshal of Solos and the young Solonian Kai over the future of the planet, a future that hinges on the contents of the message. I love this setup so much. I I just think it's great that the, the Time Lords are like, we're going to send the Doctor an anonymous football and he has to deliver it to somebody, but we won't tell him who. Yeah, we won't tell who, won't tell him why, won't give him any prep. Yeah, it's... It's very... Well, I, you have your time machine back, sort of, but we're going to punish you for it. I genuinely feel like sometimes they're just reaching into the slush pile of things they were like, well, we'll get to that eventually. They're like, oh, let's just send the Doctor on it. We don't care. We'll, <laughs> we'll send Theta Sigma and he might get it done or he might not, but either way, we won't have to do it anymore. Exactly. This has been this has been knocking around Gallifrey for a hundred years. They're like, oh, for God's sake, we've got to get that thing out. People are starting to actually play football with it. <laughs> Or maybe they had like an entire competitive sport set up around it. <laughs> Bruce was like, stop messing about. <laughs> I think this should be a short trip, actually. Big finish, hire us, please. <laughs> yes, that'd be amazing. Shall we? Yes. Okay, so uh, just as a preface, we do get these summaries off of TARDIS Wiki, but we also sometimes have to extensively edit them because whoever is writing them is a champion for creative writing, but not Absolutely. necessarily just a champion a- a for... A hero for words. Yeah, not... <laughs> Not a champion of summarising anything. And as someone who has to teach children how to summarise, I think I might end up having to use one of these as an example of saying, how much of oh, this is a actually really good necessary? idea. Just be like, let's summarise this summary of episode one of The Mutants. None of you will have seen this because it's from 50 years ago. And then you show them The Mutants. And that's your syllabus sorted this term. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so... On the polluted world of Solos, an old man flees through the desolate remains of a forest. Pausing to pick up the marshal's dropped oxymask, essential in the toxic Salonian air, Stubbs and Cotton briefly lose their commanding officer in the thick mist. They find him standing over the corpse of a dead Salonian who has jagged deformities on his back. To be clear, the marshal did shoot this guy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yep. Yeah, and then he says to Stubbs and Cotton, who are like our working class heroes of the serial... (laughs) that they need to report it back as having been found dead. And it's like, well, I guess they found dead. You killed him. This is not a lie. Found dead because of murder. Yeah, I think this is a great opening because it's like, I don't know, it really sets the scene of who the marshal is and mm-hmm. like it brings in the mystery of what on earth is going on with these mutations and all that kind of thing. Yeah. I think it's very fun. It's a nice bit of action to drop us in on as well. Yeah, very action-packed parts of this serial. I enjoy oh, it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Doctor and Joe are interrupted in their adorable banter by the sudden appearance of a message pod from the Time Lords. Which has one of my favourite Joe bits in the series, <laughs> yeah. which is like, is it lunch? Is it a bomb? <laughs> Those are her two options. Love it. Lunch or bomb. Um, his, I'm just wondering what it would be, like a big egg? Like, what is she thinking? It <laughs> Maybe there's like ramen inside it. That would be quite fun. His TARDIS is already programmed with its destination, and despite his objections, Joe joins the Doctor as it sets off for Skybase 1 in orbit of Solos. He, she just fully runs into the TARDIS. He's like, no, you shouldn't come <laughs> with me. And she's like, screw that. <laughs> oh, I love her. Arriving in the Skybase's broom cupboard, the Doctor explains to Joe that they are at the end of the Earth Empire's reign. I guess because he would know that it is the end because he's a time traveller. Yeah, yeah, he probably, like, we've established in a couple of other episodes that the Doctor keeps a diary or time logs or whatever, and presumably the Academy on Gallifrey has at least some basic historical education. <laughs> One would really hope. 
And I like that the Doctor kind of talks a little bit about, you know, empires rise and empires fall. And he's clearly not a fan of the concept of empire because the Doctor rocks. We love the Doctor. Yes. Also, it is very much of Earth to just colonize the fucking universe. Yeah. I hate it, but it's accurate. I think that the way that this serial handles it is really good as well. Well, you know, Mm. as good as it could be for the context of the time when the Empire was still actively being dismantled. Yeah, we'll get into that context later in the episode. So, uh, Salonians are beaming up from the planet to attend a conference with the Overlords, the planet's colonists from Earth. Um, Salonians are humanoid, as introduced in the story, just as like a visual Mm -hmm. reference. Kai arrives and is greeted by Varen. Only one guard and one Salonian, Varen's bodyguard, remain in the transmat lobby. The guard notices the Salonian is hiding his hand, grabs it, and sees it as green and scaled. He screams for help, only to be killed by the mutated Salonian. I... I love how much kind of exposition is handled in this scene just by how much Kai and Varen despise each other. I think it's great. Yes. Oh, I really enjoyed watching their dynamic. Yeah, it's so interesting to have that kind of, you know, like freedom fighter versus collaborator to set the mm-hmm. scene for what politics are like on Solos as separate from yeah. the Skybase. I think that was quite good. And also, I like the makeup for the mutant hand. <laughs> I think the mutation makeup is really good. It is. You are not wrong. The spines, when the spines are growing out, so cool. Lots of good effects in the serial. <laughs> and some which people think are bad, but actually are excellent. <laughs> there are no bad effects. There are no bad effects, only uh, misunderstood. About them. Yes, misunderstood. Varen is furious with the Marshal that Kai has been allowed to attend the conference. However, the Marshal has a plan for Kai and needs a trustworthy Salonian from Varen. Varen assures him all his warriors are loyal to him and will fight to the death if he orders so. The Marshal sucks major shit. He's the worst, which yeah. is very in character for a colonial official, I think. Yeah. He sort of reminds me of a friend's dad who's always yelling, you never want to be around. Like someone in middle management who thinks yeah, he's, he's very, very important. He's very Vernon Dursley, not to reference yeah. Harry Potter in 2021, but like... What, what's Harry Potter? Well, oh, sorry. It's the series of books <laughs> no one reads because the uh. author sucks. Oh, okay. I'd erased it from my memory. But yes, so, and again, this kind of establishes Varen's position within Solonian culture, that he is the leader of, like, the warriors, and he has this whole, he has he has a great look in, like, the sense that he's visually distinct from Kai. Kind has, of like, Viking-y. Yeah, it is quite Viking-y. The Doctor uses his sonic screwdriver to burn out the lock on the cupboard doors, which is detected by a communications operator and a klaxon whines. I love the use of the sonic screwdriver this early on. Yes. I've, I've missed <laughs> the screwdriver in a couple of other stories we've done where it did not appear, because it didn't exist. <laughs> But I just enjoy it very much. And I like that they burn out the lock and then the klaxon goes and the operator says, like, uh, malfunction detected in storage area four. And the doctor says to Joe, I'm not sure I like being described as a malfunction. <laughs> they have a lot of very uh, charming dialogue, these two. They are the they are so cute. They love having a little joke with one another. <laughs> it's very, very charming. Two guards, Stubbs and Cotton, once more, are in the middle of a chess game during their break. Stubbs thinks they should deal with the door malfunction, but Cotton talks them out of it. I love that they're just playing chess. Of all of the things to be doing on their break, the BBC was like, well, they can't be playing cards because that's gambling. So it's got to be chess. Yeah, they can't be drinking because that's alcohol (laughs) on a children's show. And they could be reading a book. Um, What else do people do Uh, on breaks? I personally check Twitter, but I don't think Twitter existed somehow. <laughs> hey, it's the 13th century. Are we saying that Twitter's going to stop existing at some point? I hope so. <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> uh, and we, I do like Stubbs and Cotton. Um, Cotton is played by Rick James, who is a Jamaican actor. And Stubbs is like a kind of 
I'm not sure where he's like where the accent is. Is it like a I don't know. If, I can't even remember now. Like northern. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think of it as anything remarkable while watching it, so I cannot remember. Yeah, they're both not RP accents, yeah. is what I'm saying. Like, it's nice to have some people who aren't standard BBC voices oh, God, in yeah. the show. As they explore the sky base and venture deeper into the corridors, the Doctor and Joe find nobody around. The Doctor tries to open a closed door panel, but it remains shut. They are attacked by the mutated Salonian bodyguard. The door, well, the door which the Doctor has managed to open shuts on the bodyguard's arm and traps him in place. But unfortunately, because the Doctor broke the lock, he cannot now make it close again. Yep, so he has to hold it closed. A second warning is issued by the comm operator and Stubbs and Cotton are dispatched to investigate the door's failure. They're like, we probably should go and check it out now because otherwise we'll get in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Which, honestly, massive mood. Yeah. Finding the Doctor and Joe under attack, they order them to get away from the door. Stubbs doesn't hesitate to shoot the Salonian, then asks the Doctor and Joe if they will please come with them to reception. The Doctor surmises they don't have a choice and questions Stubbs about reporting a mutant native. So he, the Doctor's trying to get some more information because obviously the Time Lords didn't deign to give him any. <laughs> I mean, that's part of, I think this is part of their like revenge. Yeah, they, man, they do not like the Doctor, <laughs> which is like... We'll get to it when we talk about the war games. In the novelization, I mentioned this to Aim already off podcast, but in the novelization, Joe says that the Time Lords don't like the Doctor for some unknown reason. Like, there's an unknown offence. So clearly he hasn't told Joe, at least, and presumably other people on Earth, about why he was forced to regenerate. And I think that's sad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, trauma, though. There's yeah, valid no, reasons for not wanting to. No, no. I know why he doesn't. I just yeah. find it sad that he hasn't got to yeah. share it with his support system. Poor Doctor. Poor Doctor. Um, it may like it might be reading too much into it, but who cares? Because that's what we do on this <laughs> podcast. That's why we're here. Yeah, the marshal is being dressed down by his superior, an administrator from Earth, played by Jeffrey Palmer. Mm. Of all things, <laughs> he's a, he's a, a character actor. He's very fun. I like him in this role. The Empire is pulling out of Solos. Earth is near economic, political, and environmental collapse, so an empire is a luxury they cannot afford at this point. This is a parallel to actual uh, England at this yeah. point. Well, England since the end of the 40s, really. Yeah, definitely World War II was like a big instigator in it because yes. of that. And also sort of parts of the end of World War One. Well, there's a his- We're going to finally get the historical context dropped oh, later on. I'm, really I'm excited. so excited for our history lesson. Yes, uh, as much as I can give one. I'm not Barbara, unfortunately, but there we go. Well, nobody is. Don't make me sad. (laughs) (laughs) The Marshal is livid. He believes this to be all the more reason their colonisation of Solos is imperative. So this is kind of setting up the argument between pro-empire and pragmatic imperialists and anti-imperialism because the the earth empire is not anti-imperialism they're just pragmatic about the fact that they can't afford to have an empire anymore yeah which is mm. the marshal is pro-empire at any cost which a lot of people still are still are yeah and then kai and his band of the salonians the doctor and joe are all very Mm anti-empire or at least anti-earth empire Yes. Joe peers out through a porthole and remarks that they can now see the planet Solos in daylight. The crumbling 13th century Earth Empire has tarnished the beauty of the once blue planet with industrialization. And the Doctor has some great dialogue about this. I think it's just... I love how environmentalist the yeah. Third Doctor's era is. I think it's great. Like, it's very 70s, hippie-ish kind of thing. Yeah, there's also a description of, like, the grey earth. Or like the grey skies and the grey seas or... The earth these people know now, Joe, in the 30th century empire is even more grey and misty. Uh, land and sea alike all grey. Grey cities linked by grey highways across grey deserts. It's just so poetic. 
Yeah, and then he says, slag, ash, clinker, the fruits of technology, Joe. So obviously this is before the miners' strike, so mm-hmm. mining was still a really important part of the English economy as well. Mm-hmm. So it's it's all interesting. I don't know if this was before or after the winter of discontent as well. But yeah, I'm just, I, I'd forgotten how political the third Doctor's era could get, because I think they end up getting more kind of... I'm sure that there is political commentary in the fourth Doctor era, but because Three's era is so grounded on Earth, it ends up having a lot of commentary. A lot more allegory, I think. And um, Robert Holmes did a lot of stuff about class in the fourth Doctor, so you're going to love it. And Malcolm Hulk, ex-member of the Communist Party, (laughs) was involved, so we we have to enjoy. Yes, so before heading to the conference, the Marshal and Administrator stop to interrogate Joe and the Doctor. The Doctor says they came to the sky base from Earth sent by Overlord Center. The Marshal is quick to suspect them and concludes he and Joe are from Solos. Somehow. Because <laughs> where else would they be from? He can't believe that these people might actually have any power over him, which they don't technically speaking, but not because they're from Solos, mm-hmm. because they are from another time period. <laughs> Exasperated, the Doctor reasons with him that they had a mission to give someone on Skybase 1 a container and shows it to them. However, it refuses to unlock for anyone since it will only open for the person it is meant for. The Doctor is unable to prove it is safe because he cannot open it either. I love this. He hands it to the administrator and then the marshal in turn and he says, well, clearly it's not for you then. (laughs) Which doesn't go down well. Yeah, it's so... Three is really making the best of a bad situation here because it's like... If I like, obviously, either neither of them could open it because it's for Solos, like it's a Solonian gift, I guess. Mm. God, well, we'll get to it later when we find out what's inside. I think mm. it's very interesting as a thing to have inside because yes. obviously, like, there's a discussion of what might be inside it. The Marshal expects it to be weapons because, of course, he does. Because what else of value is there in this world? Yeah. The Marshal shoots the container, which doesn't do anything. He believes the Doctor and Joe are spies from Earth sent from the Council to check up on him. Cotton enters, telling the officials the Solonian delegates are ready to see them. The Doctor tries to have the Marshal take the box with them in case the person who is intended to have it is present at the conference. The Marshal leaves Stubbs posted with the Doctor and Joe and makes it clear he doesn't want them to leave Stubbs' sight. As the representatives of Solos assemble, the Marshal passes a small device to Varen. Varen passes it to his son. Vaughn, I think is the name. Great name. Thank you to the Doctor Who novelization <laughs> of this episode, which was pretty rote novelization, not the best, not okay. the worst, but there we go. Okay. I like that they leave Stubbs posted. It reminds me a little bit, and this is mostly because I've already got Monty Python on the mind, because a lot of people compare the opening scene to the It's Man Monty yeah. <laughs> Python. <laughs> I think even John Pertwee compared it to that. I just thought of the bit in her Holy Grail when <laughs> the prince's father is talking to the door guards and is like, don't let anyone leave this room. <laughs> I don't know if you... Have you seen Holy Grail? Oh, not for a really long time. Oh, it's it, it's great. And then Lancelot turns up and just stabs them both because of course he does. I'll add it to our rewatch list. The administrator begins his speech to the Salonians with music. <laughs> it has, is like, a whole a affair. song. It's incredible. The Doctor calls it bombastic. <laughs> very, and very desultory fashion. He does, He's not a fan of the trappings of Empire. No. We love Three. Yes. I, can't, I can't say it enough. He's great he's in He's very, this very good. And he takes no ship. Yeah, watching the telecast together, the Doctor uses the distraction to overpower Stubbs and make his way to the conference with the message pod. Yeah, he and Joe kind of uh, tag team this, so Joe distracts Stubbs while the Doctor gets behind him and then does his, like, Venusian yes. Aikido and karate chops him on the very, neck. Very, very good. Action Doctor, we stand. The administrator's speech, though in- intended as conciliatory, comes off as condescending, because he doesn't just get to the fucking point and say, 
we are giving you your independence. He has to obviously begin with, we've done great things for your planet in the 500 years that we've been in power. And Kai is like, no, and keeps interrupting with very <laughs> Lots good Lots of sass. Love Kai. Kai's great. I'm a big fan of Kai. Mm-hmm. Um, Varen's son shoots a dart from the device. It strikes the administrator in the neck and he drops dead. The conference erupts into chaos. The marshal orders Kai's arrest because his intention has always been to frame Kai for this mm-hmm. so that he can discredit the Salonian independence movement. He flees the conference chamber, nearly colliding with the doctor just outside the door. The message pod begins to open for Kai, its intended recipient. Despite the Doctor's protestations, Kai grabs Joe as a human shield and continues to run. He pulls her into the transmat as the Marshal orders his men to open fire. Credits! Which is a good so, cliffhanger. It is a good cliffhanger. Also, going back through it like this, the amount of setup they managed to do in 20 minutes yeah, is really impressive. There's so much. It's a really engaging first episode. Mm-hmm. Like It's genuinely really good. I watched it. Uh, I watched this, and then the, the next day I watched the rest of it. It's just a really good setup. I remembered mm-hmm. what had happened. I was like, oh, there's that character. There's that character. I sort of know what's going on. Also, I will say the sign next to the transmat that says, have you got your oxy mask? It did. I was like, thank <laughs> God someone's wearing a mask in something that I'm watching in 2021. Yep. Yeah, very, just... very pertinent. <laughs> I need someone to be wearing a mask. I was watching like something with my parents. Oh, I was watching Pride and Prejudice with my dad. <laughs> I was like, where are the masks? Do you get the thing where you see people standing close together and you're like, oh no, oh no. Yeah, I, I really, really do. God, yeah. the the trauma of 2020 is bad for everyone. It's yes. gonna be, it's gonna be long lasting. But this is a fun podcast. So we're gonna. <laughs> this is how we on. distract you, <laughs> Doctor Who. All right. On to episode two. Sorry, I did want to say before we move into episode two, I like the fact that Kai's distrust of Joe and the Doctor is really clearly communicated because, mm-hmm. you know, he would distrust them because yeah. they are humanoid, if not actually human in the Doctor's case. I thought that was good. And it's not necessarily condemned as something that he does because it's like, yeah, the Overlords have treated him very badly. Yeah. So it makes I sense. thought that was good. Kai is a very good complex character. Um, he really is. The smoke clears. The transmat chamber is empty. The marshal points out Joe's safety may be short-lived. She has no oxy mask and won't survive on Solos without one. <gasps> At the transmat's ground station, Kai and Joe materialise amidst klaxons. Dodging fire from the ground station's lone guard, they escape through an airlock onto the polluted world. They are pursued by more troops, but Kai overpowers one and takes his oxy mask. Yes. Which is uh... helpful. Yes, Joe is kind of collapsed at this point. Um, The specific issue is the Salonian soil has these nitrogen deposits in it which are kind of activated by the sunlight during the day which causes this mist that is toxic to humans but not Salonians. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily pollution, it's just that it is toxic to humans which obviously the colonisers do not like and they are working on attempting to stop that from happening. Yep. Which will come back later in the serial. Yes. Um... They're pursued by more troops, but... I've already said that bit. There we go. Yeah, sorry, I just wanted to give base. some context to the, the science techno <laughs> High above in the sky base, which I love that it's called the sky base. It's There's something good. about it that just... Yeah, it's lovely. The marshal has assumed command in the wake of the administrator's death. He strikes a bargain with the doctor, open the message pod, and the marshal's men will try to save Joe. The doctor agrees reluctantly, and he's escorted to the sky base's lab. The marshal assigns his own scientist, Jaeger, to assist. Jaeger is put out by the distraction from his own work on the Salonian atmosphere, but complies. I think Jaeger's main role in the serial is to have a moan. Yeah, Jaeger's thing in this serial is to be a thinly veiled allegory for Nazi science. 
uh, and to complain about things. Yep. <laughs> Do the two uh, go hand in hand? Quite possibly. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think Jaeger's whole thing is to show kind of how, despite apparent incompetence, people can still rise to positions of power. That's like most of what the serial mm. kind of communicates, I think. Same as the Marshal, really. Yeah, definitely. The Marshal turns to the loose ends of the assassination. He kills Varen's son with the dart gun and tries to do the same to Varen himself. Varen escapes, but the Marshal declares him a mutt and orders him captured and executed. With Jaeger's reluctant help, the Doctor builds a particle reversal device to see the contents of the message pod. Stunned when the process works, Jaeger realises that particle reversal could convert the Salonian atmosphere to a more habitable one in days. Um, seeking shelter humans. in a cave, Kai explains his people's suffering to Joe. Meanwhile, Stubbs is joined by the Doctor in the search for Varen. They think they have him cornered, but Varen disarms Stubbs and nearly kills him. The Doctor's crack shot with a blaster takes up, takes the blade out of Varen's hand. Action Doctor! Truth, but, oh, we love it. Sorry, I just had some comments for the past couple of bits that I wanted to get Please do, yeah. Get Interrupt in. me. Um, action Doctor. Yeah. Excellent. He's action and science doctor. I love it. Yes. I love the particle reversal thing. I think it's it's a great setup of something that comes back later. And also I love the effect of them attempting to turn the thing inside out. Mm. <laughs> I'm like it's such a particular piece of techno bubble where you go, oh particle reversal, and he's like, it'll take what's inside and put it on the outside. <laughs> You're like, I don't think that does actually make sense, but <laughs> for Doctor Who, it makes more sense than usual. <laughs> I am no scientist. You might also say that he uh, reverses the polarity of the, the, the message contained. <laughs> if only he'd said that. If only he'd said that. That would have been good. We could have finally had like a, a sound thing that <laughs> goes and we're like, reversing polarity, ding! Um, <laughs> Take yeah, a shot. I, I, there's just so much fun stuff going on. And I like Kai explaining his people's suffering to Joe as well. Like mm. the evils of empire being set up. It's the source of the bit where Properly. they're in the cave and Kai asks Joe, what are the caves like where you're from? And she's like, I'm from London. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. Oh, a sky city. She's like, no, it's a city on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just enjoy that culture clash of the two of them. Yes. They have lots of chemistry as well. You can tell that we're having a good time making this. They do. They good. do. Having learned the truth about the assassination from Varen, Stubbs is now the doctor's ally, albeit clandestinely. They lie to the marshal, claiming Varen is dead. The marshal, meanwhile, has coaxed Cotton into lying too, corroborating the marshal's claim that Joe has been found and is in a hospital on Solos. Extremely funny to imply that there is a hospital on Solos when there is clearly <laughs> nothing, like, hardly any buildings. They are not supporting anyone. This society at all, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, mm. because colonization is bad. Yeah. And you can also really see the factions starting to come together. Yeah, definitely. I like. I really like uh, Stubbs kind of having his morality switch on suddenly mm. and going, oh right, this is actually pretty bad, Yeah, uh, what I've been doing. Oh no, so. what do I do? Their deceptions at an impasse, the marshal shuffles the Doctor off to Jaeger's project to alter Solus's atmosphere. Jaeger uses the Doctor's outrage at the proposed method, rockets launch into the atmosphere, killing all the Salonians as a side effect, to manipulate him into offering his particle reversal me method as an alternative. Oh. It's got this great line delivery from John Pertwee. With like, yes. Um, genocide is a side effect and it's the fury, Dear the God, cold man. fury in it is very powerful. It's, 
It's so good. John Pertwee is such a good actor. He's great. I mean, we say this about all the Doctors. Surprisingly, they cast good actors for the lead <laughs> role in a BBC serial. Who would have guessed? Who but could have thought of it? I love the the seriousness of it, especially because John Pertwee was mostly known as a comedic actor before this. Mm. Uh, and he is yeah. very funny, but so he commanding is very funny. at the same time. It's just wonderful. Yeah. Um, I, I really like how strongly moral the portrayal of the Doctor is in this. I like the more grey Doctor from other eras, but this particular one, I like the Doctor taking a side. Uh, this is not <laughs> an issue to be grey about. Yeah, definitely not. So Cotton speaks to the Doctor discreetly. He explains that Stubbs has brought him in on their side and tells him the truth about Joe. The Doctor and Cotton devise a method to get the Doctor off the sky base. Then the Doctor turns the tables on Jaeger, using his enthusiasm for particle reversal to make him a patsy yep. for the escape. Patsy for the escape. That is not I a l- word I've seen in a long time. Yeah, thank you, TARDIS Wiki, for once again blessing us <laughs> with your wording. I <laughs> love this. He makes, it, <laughs> he makes this insane science device out of like all of the things in the lab. I also love when he goes into the lab and he's like, yeah, this is all right. And the marshal is very offended mm-hmm. that he's not really impressed <laughs> by... A couple of machines, when the Doctor probably has more than that on the TARDIS. Um, Oh, I just love that he makes Jaeger just stare at this one part of this contraption that he has deliberately made so that it will (laughs) blow up. And when it starts, like, shaking and smoking, he's like, no, just keep looking at that bit, it'll be fine. (laughs) And then it blows up in his face. Who could have seen this coming? I love it. I love all of the stuff with the Doctor in the lab. I just think it's great. Stubbs informs Varen of the plan to get off the Skybase. Though suspicious, he appears to agree. The Doctor overloads the Skybase power, stunning Jaeger. He makes his way to the transmat, only to be grabbed by Varen. With his <gasps> blade at the Doctor's throat, he growls, Die, Overlord. Another good cliffhanger. Very good cliffhanger. Yeah, I've got that in my notes. Good cliffhanger. I, I didn't make any notes this episode. <laughs> this is the reveal that I <laughs> Rosie forgot to make notes because they were so enthralled with the action of the mutants. A lot was going on. Yeah, please cancel me on Gallifrey base for enjoying this series. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I I really like how um, Varen now that he understands that the marshal has betrayed him is like, well, obviously I'm gonna properly do a reversal, and now I hate everyone on that side, despite the fact that I've been collaborating with them for God knows how long. I think it's kind of an interesting parallel where it's like Varen is looking for revenge, whereas Kai is looking for like reparation or whatever. Mm. Like it's um, on one side, Varen's uh, feelings are very rooted in his own struggling, I guess, or his own traumas, perhaps. Yeah. And then Kai's is very much in like his own and collective suffering of this community. I also really like that there are two different approaches from the Salarians. Um, it yeah, adds definitely. Like a level of nuance to the response to Empire. It's really good. It's almost like it's really good. <laughs> um, okay, episode three. With Varen literally at his throat, thank you, TARDIS Wiki, <laughs> the Doctor transmats to Solos. As the two emerge from the transmat chamber, the Doctor incapacitates his assailant with some Venusian Aikido. Yes! Yay! Action yes! Doctor! Yes, it's basically like a Vulcan neck pinch. Yep. I, I love it. Um, he gets Varen's word that he will take the Doctor to Kai. Despite the onset of a firestorm in the sky, a side effect of the Marshal's manipulation of the atmosphere... I would never want that as a side effect for anything. No. Is it the night by this point? I thought, isn't this the bit where Varen says that no Overlord uh, or no Earthman can walk on the surface at this time? And the Doctor says, who said I was an Earthman? 
Yes, I think it is. I think it's because they're going out into the night, but he's like, but it will be morning soon. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the doctor's like, please stop assuming my species and gender. Um, <laughs> what yeah, is this I, man I, I hear so much of? Not I, I, I surely. It'll, it'll come back later. It's, it's just, it's it's good. Elsewhere on Solos, Kai and Joe watch the same firestorm before a group of agitated mutts forces them to retreat deeper into the cave. So we love the mutant design in this. They're so cute. Uh, very cute. Very cute. Those big eyes and the mandibles. And they and move the... slightly <laughs> junkly. Yeah, I'm doing it in my, yep, in same. my chair. It's, <laughs> it's so definitely not intended to be cute. Definitely intended to be scary. Probably but the was scary just... in the 70s. However, yeah. in the year of our Lord 2021. I don't think the way that they're framed by the camera makes them particularly scary. Like, there's uh, when they're introduced, and in this scene, they're quite scary, but elsewhere, they're kind of framed quite far away and it's light. It's not the same level of intimidation. And that might be intentional, because by that point, we're not supposed to view them as evil, but, mm. you know. Um, I like this because Kai says that they're not usually aggressive, so we also see that kind of things are different in the cave for some reason. Mm-hmm. After expressing his frustration with Jaeger by means of a cathartic yelling session... <laughs> Thank you, Tyler. I love that. I had to leave that bit in. Yeah, of course. The marshal orders his scientists to go ahead with the original, more genocidal atmosphere modification plan. I think that more genocidal isn't really a modifier. I think that either something is genocidal Genocidal or it is not. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe it's Um, the the one that would kill even more people. Yeah, I guess. But Mm. either way. um, So the, the, the more genocidal atmosphere modification plan is the one that will make the atmosphere only breathable by humans because i think the particle reversal one theoretically could have made it livable by both he summons Stubbs and cotton to his office they are understandably apprehensive what with their recent treason (laughs) they are dressed down but the marshal does not consider them traitors merely incompetent he sends them down to solos to pursue the escaped doctor and varan flushing them out of the caves with gas grenades very much oh you're incompetent go and do this important task yeah (laughs) Um, I like how much stuff there is to do with like gas and mist in this. Clearly, mm. they were like, "Well, we have all of these smoke effects that we need to use." <laughs> Let's just chuck like, them down the quarry. Yeah, like yes, the quarry. We haven't mentioned there's a lot of quarry filming in this. Also, location filming in a cave, right? Yes. Uh, yep. Chiselhurst. Chiselhurst sounds right. Yep. There we go. I looked at the behind the scenes thing earlier. Sorry, everyone. I'm ruining the mystique of the podcast. <laughs> But yes, I, I just really like all these cave chase scenes and like the Doctor and Varen are trying to find Joe and Kai. Varen's tracking leads them to Kai and Joe's fire. Despite Varen's protests that he will go no further, the two proceed deeper into the cave after their quarry. Varen does not like these caves. Um, and we sort of understand why mm. a little bit later, but I like the kind of apprehension, uh, the apprehension mm. that he has. It's good. Kai, meanwhile, fends off a mob of increasingly agitated mutts. The Doctor and Varen's arrival helps quell the beastly melee, but Joe has run deeper into the caves. Uh, she finds a chamber of light and sound, driving her to unconsciousness. A figure in a protective suit emerges and moves to her side. Chroma key effects! Yes! <laughs> it also just seems like she's having a really bad trip. Yeah, it's it's so... I just love that moment when she comes into the cave and there's all these rainbow mm. lights reflecting everywhere and... She's so overwhelmed. And even the slightly poor effect of the chroma key makes it feel really like otherworldly and weird. Yeah, that the she's way the light fuzzing moves in and out. And, yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I love the introduction of the guy in the radiation suit. It's Yes. It's so good. And she's like, you know, understandably, because she's getting irradiated, she faints. <laughs> yeah. Like of all the times a companion a female companion has fainted, this is the one where I'm like, Yeah, you probably would. <laughs> <laughs> Same. 
the doctor finally gives the message pod to Kai. In his defense, this is the first time he's managed to get face to face with him. Not for lack of trying. Yes. In his hand, the pod opens, revealing a set of stone tablets. Varen and Kai, expecting weapons, are disappointed. Why does everybody expect weapons? I don't know. I guess they're thinking about the fight against uh, yeah. colonialism as always a physical fight when it can be like a, a brain an fight. ideological one, I guess. A brain fight, yeah. <laughs> like, they were. <laughs> Sorry, I just remembered that bit. Is it in The Three Doctors where the doctor fights this, like, lizard creature in the void? Sounds like it could be. <laughs> it's either Three Doctors or Five Doctors. It is amazing and i love it um kai identifies the markings on the tablets as ancient Salonian writing no one understands it anymore as the overlords have destroyed their culture again we get some commentary mm-hmm. uh and it's really sad and you're like oh man that sucks imagine how bad that would be if that happened in real life mm-hmm. <laughs> um this also reminded me of a video game i played recently that i really liked called heaven's vault which is about uh, translating an alien language. I thought that was a good recommendation if people were intrigued by the later translation scene, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. I um, haven't spoken to anybody who hasn't loved that game. Yeah, it's it's really good. It's on my list. Varen storms off, declaring he shall lead his village against their human oppressors. Kai and the Doctor, meanwhile, begin searching for Joe. So Varen is now very much on the anti- overlord train as we've mentioned, but he's going all guns blazing rather than thinking about it, so it's kind of like a Maybe you should consider your angles of approach first, I guess. (laughs) The Marshal begins deploying his gas bombs. He sends Stubbs and Cotton deeper into the caves after the Doctor, giving them 15 minutes to find him and Joe. Mm. Which seems like not very long, considering how massive caves are. Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, he is setting them up to fail, or at least setting them up to betray themselves. Monitoring them on his radio, the Marshal overhears their friendly greeting to the Doctor, then sets off an explosive to seal them in. And there's obviously the gas inside the... which Mm. will kill them if they... You know, it's very uh, violating the Geneva Conventions of him. Damned if you do, damned if you don't as well. Varen returns to his village. It is deserted except for an elderly Salonian in the midst of transforming into a mutt. He is horrified to see the beginnings of the transformation on his own arm, then hears a voice in his head telling him to go to the place of sleeping and light. As Jo recounts her experience in the mysterious chamber, Stubbs reconnoiters only to find the caves are sealed and the gas is closing in. Again, we're following through on all the different plots that are going on in the episode. Yeah, and there's quite a lot to balance. So the fact that none of them seem to get dropped. Yeah, there's things happen in every episode. Yeah. It's amazing. The, the stakes change slightly. People's allegiances change. Yeah, and now that we've finally got this, the tablets open, mm-hmm. we're like, oh, so this is like the next mystery. Because the previous mystery was what's inside. And now it's like, well, what the what fuck is does it? that mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's good. Answering it with more questions. I also yeah. adore the phrasing of go to the place of sleeping and light. Because it just sounds so, so restful. Yeah, it's so like intriguing. You're like, what on earth does that mean? And then you're like, oh, I remember a place of light earlier in this very episode. Mm. <laughs> Kai says that there's like one person on the planet who might know what the markings mean, Professor Sondergaard, who vanished at some point because he disagreed with the Marshal about his treatment of the Salonians. Yep. Ominous. Ominous. Yes. Episode four. The figure in the protective suit emerges again. It gestures for the Doctor and his entourage to follow. By just doing a massive arm sweep over and over. <laughs> it <laughs> doesn't <works>. yell at them. <laughs> doesn't say I think that makes it even more ominous, just the silence in a, in a story where we've had so many shouty characters. Yeah. It leads them to a lead-lined chamber deep in the caves. Professor Sondergaard, I presume, quipped the Doctor. 
it's it's good. I also like that the doctor like gets out a coin and scrapes it. Mm. I've never seen someone test for lead before. I know it's a soft metal. I was like, oh, interesting. And then he asks Joe, "What do you think of when you think of lead?" And she goes, "Radiation." And it's like, yes, Joe and knows things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> While the marshal orders his men to continue sealing the caves, Sondergaard says Joe wandered into a chamber of intense radioactivity. He believes that while there are normal changes in the ecosystem, Jaeger's experiments altered the natural balance. This is the introduction of the idea of cesium radiation as like a factor in the episode. Because obviously, um, earlier in the serial, they explained that Solos was colonised partly because it had really high levels of cesium, which is used as a fuel. Mm -hmm. It is not an element that exists on Earth, but it sounds like an element. (laughs) So you're like, okay, I can can buy that that would be on the periodic table in a thousand years. Um... (laughs) And that it is a radioactive element. So I thought that was worth mentioning at this point. Thank you. No problem. Uh, the marshal returns to the sky base and orders Jaeger to begin the bombardment of Solos with ionization rockets to change its atmosphere. Below, Kai opens the pod again to display the tablets. Songard tries to translate them, declaring them the Solonian equivalent to the Book of Genesis, but his attempts to scry meaning from them are interrupted by the cave's continued collapse. Kai, Joe, Stubbs and Cotton head out to the relative safety of Baron's village, while the Doctor and Sondergaard remain to continue the study of the tablets. I really like how they do this study of the tablets, because Sondergaard's like, well, I have approximate translations for some of the symbols, and you're like, that makes sense, actually, because there's no Rosetta Stone of Salonian ancient writing. So it's all about context, and I find that quite interesting. Also the fact that they're just just kind of throwing guesses out for what the four tablets might mean. Like, they identify that it's a sequence, the Doctor goes, uh air, water, earth, fire. <laughs> then he goes, no, that's stupid, don't worry about it. <laughs> like, they're, they're trying to figure it out. They identify all these symbols. They go, oh, these curly ones must be radiation. I know that this is the symbol for life, so it's all about life repeating. Mm-hmm. What is the sequence just... that repeats? Life. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really good, and it's a more realistic portrayal of translation, I think. I really wish there was more exploration of alien languages. I think this is before the translation circuit became quite such a catch-all for like yeah. reading and and speaking uh, that's something that i always feel when i'm watching sci-fi is but languages yeah i know yeah, you have definitely. your babel fish but languages but languages which is why heaven's voice is so good and why i enjoy the scene so much yes the doctor hits upon the meaning of the tablets a calendar of the 500 year salonian seasons and interprets one symbol as referring to the radiation of the chamber this is, again, really good. I also mm. like that he says, Eureka! <laughs> Spring, summer, autumn, winter. It's good. Like, And then um, Sondergaard says, but it has no seasons. And the Doctor's like, well, these clearly refer to the orbit. Like, there's these symbols that are like big ellipse, mm. ellipses or whatever. Is that elliptical? Pardon me. That's, that's the, the one. That's the, that's the word. Uh, the, the, that show where Solos is in relation to the sun. And it's like... That it has a 2,000-year-long year. year. I thought that was really interesting. Putting it all together and think, oh, well, it's only been occupied for 500 years. They must have only seen it for one season. Yeah, and the fact that uh, they say there's no seasons because the planet doesn't tilt. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) they're actually doing more science education. I thought that was nice. Yep. Baron addresses his few remaining warriors and is interrupted by a report of the approach of overlords. When Stubbs, Cotton, Kai and Joe arrive, they are ambushed and forced to surrender their guns. Varan declares his plans for revenge to attack Skybase using his captives as hostages and shields. Yikes. As they plunge deeper into the radioactive chamber, 
The Doctor is forced to leave Sondergaard when the radiation overwhelms his suit. At the heart of the chamber, the Doctor finds a glowing statue with a green crystal set in it, which he takes. He retrieves Sondergaard and leaves the chamber. This is also the bit where Sondergaard says, no man could survive the radiation in the chamber, and the Doctor's like... No man. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's such a good line, and um, obviously it was not intended as... Gender feels. Uh, gen- gender feels, but... It ended up being gender feels, as we say, because three is somehow the most non-binary doctor. I'm a really big fan. <laughs> At least until eight, I guess. Um, uh, let me try and find the exact line. I'm going to find it. Damn it. I don't know. Six might be quite a non-binary doctor. Six. Yeah, quite. Oh, yeah. It says, uh, if you spend any time in there without one doctor, you will die. Any man would. Doctor says, any man, perhaps. <laughs> very, very good. I love it. Um, and also, uh, I like that when he retrieves Sondergaard, he does a fireman's carry. <laughs> it's just good. Aboard Skybase, the Marshal's plan is forced to accelerate. An Earth Empire investigator will be arriving shortly. Unbeknownst to him, Varan has already taken a transmat ground station and is beaming aboard. The Doctor tries to analyse the crystal he retrieved, but Sondergaard's equipment is too primitive. They, too, set out for Skybase. The launch of the ionisation rockets is imminent, but momentarily interrupted when Varen's incursion is detected. The Marshal orders the countdown to continue while he assembles a squad to repel the intruders. They ambush Varen's warriors, slaughtering them. The Marshal personally dispatches Varen. Unfortunately, his blaster fire tears a hole in the Skybase's hull, blowing Varen out into the vacuum. As the ionisation rocket launches... The Marshal, Kai, Stubbs, Cotton and Joe all cling for their lives as the air rushes out into space. I love this cliffhanger (laughs) so much. Like, you see Varen floating out into space and you're like, okay, so I know vaguely how depressurization works. They're all going to get sucked out of that hole. That does not happen. There's like a vague pulling. Yeah. (laughs) But they're all just going... I think it's the Sorry. stage where when I was watching it, I didn't realise that they'd fully torn a hole in it because the reaction wasn't big enough. <laughs> yeah, it's not an explosive depressurization. Like, I guess you could kind of um, no prize explain it where you're like, well, maybe there's shields. But if there were shields, why does Varen go straight through them? I have no idea. <laughs> it's so good. And they're all like making this human chain to like cling <laughs> on. It's I just love it. And then there's like, I just... <laughs> Sorry. I was genuinely so delighted by it when I was watching it. I like started cackling. It was incredible. <laughs> Some people probably think this is bad, but it's fun. <laughs> but it's fun, and that's what's important. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, episode five: Joe, Kai, Stubbs, and Cotton struggle out of the depressurized chamber. They find themselves arrested by the marshal and facing summary execution because, of course, they do. <laughs> um, the firing squad, Jesus Christ, takes aim only to be stopped at the last moment by Jaeger. Unconcerned with the welfare of the Marshal's captors, Jaeger is livid that his rocket barrage was a complete failure. Due to poor maintenance and the Marshal's unreasonable timetable, the rockets poisoned Solos's surface rather than ionising its atmosphere. Yeah, because they weren't meant to land, like, properly land and explode in the ground. They were meant to explode in the atmosphere where it would, you know, change the weather. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, shockingly I, it went wrong yeah shockingly I think it's interesting to have um, I guess a comparison to a previous weather control episode which is the moon base which is a weather controlling station where it's using like a big laser <laughs> I think. 
why? So it's interesting how science uh, or meteorology progressed to the point where they kind of understood more how weather and atmosphere worked, mm. uh, even mm. in just like a couple of years. That, that is a really cool observation, yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I've got science Yay. know-how somewhere in my brain. Um <laughs> Jaeger mentions the investigator in passing, and Stubbs and Joe drive home the point. Even with them executed, the marshal's men are tired and want to go home. One of them will report the true state of the Salonian occupation. The marshal seems unconcerned. If necessary, he will blow the investigator's ship out of space. Joe bluffs the marshal, claiming that the doctor is the investigator's advance party. I love this. Good on Joe. She's <laughs> Joe like... is fantastic in this story. She's genuinely got so much to do. She's like, some people, some, I saw someone describe her as a bit thick in this story. And I was like, how dare you? Um, Maybe they weren't watching uh, the same show. Maybe they were being misogynist. Uh, because I haven't said their name by name. <laughs> I'm not calling anyone out. I'm just saying. <laughs> maybe anyone who doesn't like Joe in this story is being a misogynist. Hmm. Um, yeah, I really like this. I like kind of the ongoing struggle between... The investigator's arrival and the fact that the marshal is power hungry and pretty going off the rails by this point. Like his entire plan, it keeps getting destroyed and he's still convinced that he is going to win. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just how deeply he's bought in. Yeah. On the planet below, the Doctor and Sondergaard find the bombardment waning but the damage done. The plant life is already contaminated by the ionisation crystals. Sondergaard is too weak to continue but he insists the Doctor go to Skybase to solve the mystery of the green stone. Because Sondergaard doesn't have an oxy mask, right? Because it was stolen. No? I think he just Sondergaard doesn't have doesn't. one. Okay. I uh, Does he have one? I am unsure. Yeah, I feel like the Doctor could have just picked him up, but we're not going to go too far into that particular <laughs> plot hole. Also, you know, like, he wants to stay. Uh, you do you, Sondergaard. <laughs> um, the Marshal returns to Solos to capture the Doctor. He hopes that, with Joe as a hostage, he can persuade the Doctor to use his particle reversal techniques to clean up the environmental mess on Solos before the investigator arrives. The troops track the Doctor through the mist, but he overpowers one and flees to the Transmat ground station. Action Doctor! He's just... <laughs> he's, he's, got... he's like, you could do an Action Man advert, but it's just a third Doctor figure in the midst of it. And That's it would ex- still be exactly <laughs> what John Pertwee wanted. Yes, he is just great. Um, I also, uh, just because I haven't mentioned it before, his outfit in the story is incredible and I love it. It's um, like crushed red velvet. Yes, and, oh. and then at one point he's doing science and he's taking the jacket off and you can see all the ruffles on his shirt. It's very good. I love it, I love it, I love it. Whoever was doing the costuming at this point in the show is my idol. Like, Joe's outfit in this is incredible as Brilliant, well. It's like yeah. she's wearing a sofa, but stylishly. Not bad for the 70s. Yeah, definitely. The chase continues onto Skybase where the Doctor finds his captive friends. He is about to release their handcuffs with his sonic screwdriver when the Marshal steps out, springing the trap. He blackmails the Doctor into cooperating. This is a power move by the Marshal. He throws the keys to the Doctor and is like, unlock them if you want, Doctor. (laughs) But consider what I can do to them once they're free. Like, my God. I also really like how just when you think you know what's going to happen, they change the stakes. Yeah, it's it's good, and it's kind of like, oh, he's going to rescue them, and then they're going to do this and that. But no, because it's, like you say, it's really moving the goalposts, that kind of thing. Mm. It's, it's intriguing. The Doctor outlines his plan to Jaeger. Use the Transmat's macrophaser to effect particle reversal in swathes across Solos. This will, of course, necessitate shutdown of the Transmat system. It's called a maser in the novelization. <laughs> <laughs> macrophaser. Maser. Yeah, I love it. Like, it makes sense, but I was reading it, I was like, did they just forget the word laser? (laughs) 
Because <laughs> I forgot what they called it in the serial, because yeah. I have a memory like a sieve for Technobabble, apparently. Um, Joe slips out of her cuffs and disarms the guard. Cotton tries to contact the investigator's ship, but guards are already at the door and Stubbs holds them off. The marshal arrives and sprays the room with blaster fire. Even as the investigator is contacted, Stubbs is gunned down by being shot in the butt. I just... <laughs> It's amazing. Um, yeah, uh, they do manage to contact the investigator on the Hyperion. Joe conveys all the uh, information very succinctly. I'm impressed. It like it really does sum up what's happened so far. You're like, oh, I know all of this because this serial is structured really well. Mm. I understand what's going on for once. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a miracle. Uh, but yeah, so there's a there's there's a moment where Cotton is like cradling Stubbs. It's really you know it's like, very oh. sweet. Yes, I have a quote to read about it later. Uh, very, very famous quote, not from the episode, from some like academic theory, which I enjoy. Incredible. Um, leaving yeah, leaving his fallen friend behind, Cotton leads Joe and Kai to an escape, the transmat. They enter the transmat only to find it offline. The doctor's procedure has just begun because they had to divert power from one place to the other, so they couldn't use the transmat because that's the only macrophaser that he needed to use to fix the uh, environmental poisoning that Jaeger had just taken part in. Sondergaard has returned to the cave. He is nearly accosted by a guard, only to be saved by a mutt. Uh, Sondergaard explains what he has learned. They have one chance, the Doctor. This is good where we kind of come to understand that the mutants are like sentient, like they know what's mm -hmm. going on. They're not just uh, creatures powered by instinct. Mm -hmm. They understand language. And you're like, ooh, something's going on here. Far above, the Doctor and Jaeger begin sweeping their particle reversal beam across the planet. It undoes the damage of the rockets, but the Marshal is not satisfied. I guess he threatens Joe's safety if the Doctor does not terraform the planet further. Just then, the investigator's ship approaches Skybase. Joe, Cotton and Kai are kept as hostages to ensure the Doctor does not expose him to the investigator. Cotton realises that the Marshal has ordered them held in the Thesium storage chamber, a chamber that will be flooded with radioactivity as soon as the investigator's ship refuels. Outside Skybase, the ship slowly moves to dock with a model shot! <laughs> and it's, it's a, a good model, model shot, shot as well it's so good i love the design of skybase um i think it's good also i think skybase's name is probably inspired by skylab i think there was a skylab in the Ooh. 70s yeah that sounds about right i know the design was inspired by nasa's Ooh. prototype space station yeah skylab was launched in 1973 so this could be like mm, a very timely like the idea was already being bandied about i think that's interesting yeah, yeah, so I again a good cliffhanger. Yeah, um, and again the stakes are different to what they were at the start of the episode. You've learnt more about the situation. It's well yeah. paced. It's so well paced. It's a six parter that's well paced. <laughs> what the hell? I think we found the the rarity. Yeah, the 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 rare one where it's difficult to think of which episode mm. you could cut. Like or you've even got which parts plot line. of episodes. Yeah, you could yeah. cut parts of episodes, but it would detract from the story because it's all important to the narrative yep. so there you go episode six the investigator arrives immediately suspends all troops loyal to the marshal and begins his inquiry with joe in his grasp the marshal has an unwilling ally in the doctor I the doctor this. is also... so protective of joe in this story yeah it's so sweet like it's quite it, it gets a little bit paternalistic but it's also just like he cares about her and he mm. worries about her because they're friends and it's nice it's um, good <laughs> Also, we have to talk about the investigator, like the Earth Council's outfits. Oh, oh my, god. my god. These like brushed copper, like helmet headdresses. It's very Gallifreyan, yeah. really. It is. Very formal. I feel like they might have reused the concept later for the Gallifreyans. That it fits, just, actually, yeah. It looks great. 
it's just a good design and it's it's so weird and slightly incongruous like the design of the sky based personnel's uniform is quite I guess fascist in yeah, its own way. Very um, fascist. And then we kind of contrast with this weird, like neutral toned copper mm. situation. And you're like, well, what's going on with this? This is different and weird. Yep. I imagine it's that they've changed it recently and they haven't been able to afford to upgrade yeah. it here. Or that it's a deliberate attempt to look more unbiased. Yeah. Or uh, it's like the formal outfit. I don't know. I don't think they thought this hard about the world building of the Earth Empire. <laughs> That's for us to do. That's for us to do, exactly. The fuel probe from the docked ship enters the thesium chamber. Joe, Kai and Cotton climb in, hoping to escape the radiation in the ship. They make their way to the inquiry. With Joe safe, the doctor speaks freely. He accuses the marshal of genocide. The marshal erupts with rage, sputtering that the mutts should be wiped off the face of the planet, which persuades the investigator. As it would. I don't quite understand how they managed to escape the thesium chamber. Like, they climb into the fuel probe. Surely the fuel probe will involve... It's full of thesium. Like, surely... Like, is it that the probe goes in to see, like, how much fuel he's adding and because they're in... I I don't know. It's not explained very well. Um, And then they get out of the probe, I guess somehow it it's really weird and i don't understand it. but they're okay <laughs> or maybe so it's, it's that fine. they climb through the fuel probe out onto the shuttle and then in through the air that's how i interpreted it yeah it's just odd that the fuel probe has a line straight through like you'd you'd think that they would at some point end up bathing in radiation but but that's fine. clearly not a concern in this episode <laughs> it's fine um and then obviously i like um the way that the marshal and the doctor interact in the scene before joe turns up where the doctor really wants to be honest but the marshal just was like don't you agree that the mm. mutant's condition is incurable and it's like Ooh. Ooh, it's so manipulative and slimy yeah also he it, the doctor is giving context to what the marshal is saying and he's like oh well it's a native genetic metamorphosis or whatever and the investigator says oh were you a doctor then <laughs> he says <laughs> yeah in, <laughs> of a sort or whatever the investigator says uh what are you qualified in and the doctor says it's every what is it everything practically everything yeah very good <laughs> extremely good However, the investigator is obliged to due process and insists on proof of the Doctor's claims about the Salonian mutation. Sondergaard arrives on Skybase and tries to corroborate the Doctor's claim. He is followed by a mutt whose presence throws the proceedings into chaos. There's a lot of chaos in the story. The Marshal grabs a blaster and guns down the terrified mutt. The violence persuades the investigator to reinstate the Marshal's command. I love when they ask for proof and the doctor mm. like pats down his pockets thinking that he put the tablets yeah. in his pocket. Oh no, Sondergaard has them. Sondergaard has them, except that Sondergaard doesn't have them. Because <laughs> <laughs> no one thought to pick them up. Yeah. They're like, oh, you know, they'll trust us. Um, and I do like that the investigator is like cowed by the violence. He goes, oh, well, you know, maybe these people who've been here for longer know what's going on more than mm. I do. And it's like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> It's this kind of idea that uh, violence is always bad and scary, right? That the Mm. Earth person buys into and the Doctor doesn't. Well, why are you protesting so violently? Because you didn't respond to any of my non-violent protests. Exactly, exactly. While the Doctor, Sondergaard and Joe flee, Cotton attends to Kai, who has been ill since their experience in the refuelling chamber. The Marshal orders Cotton and Kai thrown back into the refuelling chamber, despite the thesium radiation being at a lethal intensity. 
Yike. The doctor seals himself in Jaeger's lab. With Sondergaard, he tries to analyse the green stone. They put it under the particle reversal machine and realise it must be the catalyst that allows the thesium radiation to bring the Salonians to their next stage of evolution. Yes, they've the- realised that the mutants are a kind of midpoint, like the mm-hmm. cocoon of yes. the seasonal evolution. It's really interesting. And I love the effect when the crystal starts glowing. Yeah. It's, it's really good it's and rainbowy. There's it. a lot of rainbows in the yes, back half of it's this. excellent. It's excellent. Um, the marshal blasts his way in. He orders Joe and Sundergaard thrown in the radiation chamber with Kai and Cotton. He does not know this is exactly what the doctor wishes. <laughs> with the combination of the stone, the radiation and Kai, the mutation should succeed this time. The marshal keeps the doctor in the lab to complete the terraforming. Sondercard gives Kai the stone, and the Salonian begins to change into a mutt faster than any of the previous transformations. This is so good. The fading transition between mm. the stages, like it goes from, you know, plain hand to crunchy hand to, <laughs> to claw. claw. And then, you know, he becomes a mutt and then he starts going further and you're like, oh, Wait, what? I get There's it more? now. Yeah, oh my God, brilliant. it's so good. The Doctor continues to work under the watch of Jaeger and the Marshal, but uses the distraction of the investigator bursting in to switch a pair of wires in the particle reversal device. The investigator has learned he is now the Marshal's prisoner. The Marshal intends to transform Solos into a new Earth and make the investigator's crew his first batch of settlers. The Doctor points out that he said the Marshal was quite mad. <laughs> it's like, I told you so. <laughs> one, way, one way to put it. Yeah. Kai's transformation completes. He emerges from the larval mutt stage as a glowing, telepathic, and almost omnipotent being. He thanks Sondergaard for his help and disappears, opening the door almost as an afterthought. The now godlike Kai floats through the corridors of Skybase. The guards he passes fall dead as he goes. It's very powerful. Yes, just so the listeners know, because I will have edited it out, but Aim was so overcome by the memory I, of this it's scene. It's very that exciting. <laughs> It's so good. He's he's uh, Kai is like rainbow and like like yeah. more androgynous somehow, just floating like a beautiful gay butterfly. It's so good. A beautiful gay butterfly who hates fascists. Yes, we do, Stan. It's like it's incredible. <laughs> it's just it's so incredible. good. In the lab, Jaeger throws the switch on the Doctor's device, only to be killed in the blast as his sabotage does its work. The Marshal trains his gun on the Doctor, but Kai appears and vaporises the Marshal in retribution for his torture of the Salonians. Kai thanks the Doctor and vanishes. I like that the Marshal specifically says he doesn't trust the Doctor to flip the switch, <laughs> so he sends Jaeger to do it. And it's like, the Doctor is probably like, man, I really didn't want to die. So <laughs> this is exactly what I hoped would happen. With Sondergaard staying on to help the Mutts complete their transformation, and Cotton appointed to oversee the withdrawal of the Sky Base to Earth, the investigator wants the Doctor to return to Hyperion and give a full account of his involvement with the Salonian affairs. Aware that he is a complete, unqualified stranger masquerading as an official, <laughs> the Doctor makes an excuse to leave by saying that Joe doesn't look so well and Joe catches the hint. The Doctor and Joe head back to the TARDIS before the investigator can learn he's a phony. With a terrible pun, the Doctor returns his blue box to the yes! room cupboard. Do you have the pun in the script? I do. I believe that he says they made a clean sweep. <laughs> Hang on, let me find it. Yeah, yes, well, at least we made a clean sweep of the place. Yep. And then Joe winces and he goes, no. Another one of their just really lovely um, exchanges. 
so As cute. the TARDIS departs, so a familiar alert on the comm speaker brings their adventure full circle. Attention, attention, computer confirms malfunction in storage area 4. Investigate, please. Investigate, please. To remain in this universe, the creature would have to reverse its polarity. It's really well structured. It's so good. <laughs> I, uh, man, we'll talk more about this later, but we both kind of, like, I had absolutely no preconceptions about this episode, mm-hmm. and Aim from Joel believed that it was going to be bad, and we both had an absolute blast. I had a great it. time. I was watching it like, what's meant to be bad about this? This is fun. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we're going to watch more John Pertwee and be like, oh, maybe this is just... In comparison to the rest of Pertwee, perhaps. But the thing is that I've watched some other Pertwee, and I think it's just as good. Mm. Like, what's wrong with the mutants? <laughs> okay. Um, right. Let's move on to talking about three, the mm-hmm. third Doctor. And then I'll put the Doctor drop in. <laughs> An apple a day keeps the, uh... No, never mind. Oh my god, I love the third Doctor. I think he's fantastic. I think he's so much fun to watch, which is the heart of the show. Yeah. He just... He has such fun, and... uh, As I've mentioned, he's my mum's fave. Don't blame her. Like, my Mm. god, imagine getting to grow up watching all of these on a Saturday afternoon. So good. How amazing. Yeah, he's the, he's the science doctor and the action doctor. I like seeing yes. the two go hand in hand. I love, obviously the doctor has previously been portrayed as intelligent in this particular way, but I like how they make it of a more practical, like mm. scientific, like they, they give him a job doing science and he does science all the time. And you're like, hey, this is really good. <laughs> so obviously the, thir- the first doctor is kind of a scientist, but Ian was there to be the, the science. science explainer. Mm. Whereas now the doctor is the science explainer. I think as as we've sort of alluded to, he is so angry about genocide and he comes down very hard against it. Yes, which yeah. is a low bar. Lots but of good somehow, stuff. S- somehow some sci-fi shows don't come down that hard on one side or the other. Yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 so interesting how I've put a note about this in the doc that he might be the most anti-establishment doctor despite working for the UN. <laughs> I think maybe that's partly why he is. Yeah, he's like, he hates being constrained by this whole thing. And much as he is friends with Unit and he likes the Brigadier, he does not like the Brigadier's... Approaches. Yes, his his ideological approaches to situations, which is mm-hmm. sometimes, let's shoot it or let's genocide the Silurians. We'll get to it mm. <laughs> at some point. <laughs> I also love the whims- the whimsy that he possesses mm. sometimes, where he's talking about how if something goes wrong with the particle reversal, they'll become unpeople doing unthings untogether. It's really good. It's really Lots good. Lots of great little lines in this. Yes. Also, as mentioned, uh, we love his outfits. I love this era where he gets to change clothes because this doctor is, as described by the first doctor, a dandy. We love it. <laughs> With his opera capes and his frock so coats. fancy and I love it. He is. He is great. I just love the idea that he finally has a salary. He's like, I'm going to start wearing <laughs> as much clothes. fun clothing as possible. Before this, he had no money. So he was wearing the same outfit every week. And now he's like, I'm going to wear whatever I want. God damn it. <laughs> I am a very professional scientist in my very professional scientist outfit. Yes, I love it. I love it. 
I guess <laughs> basically our commentary on the Doctor this serial we is love that him. he's great. I really, as I mentioned, I really like the kind of research scene where he and Sondergaard are discussing the translation. I like that it's more like a lateral thinking problem as presented rather than strictly scientific or linguistic because obviously they're basically trying to guess their way to the problem. Mm. Um, it's interesting how they logic it out. And it's not doing, you know... <laughs> It's based on basic symbolic logic. And if you express the result of these weird spirals as a power series, you'll be able to translate all of the time. It's um, really well put together. Yeah. I feel like in the new series, he would have just like gone, oh, I know this language because I'm, you know, I, I, know I know everything. everything. Whereas at this point, they still had the doctor as kind of someone who knows a lot, but he still needs, he still has more things to mm. learn about. Yep. Yeah. We love him. Let's move on to talking about Joe. <laughs> we love Joe. I have to go. Now look, if you're going to be in trouble, you'll need me to look after you. Me too. But right. you don't understand. We do love Joe. Oh man, she's just like she's just so defined as a character who likes adventures and she mm. likes making fun of three and she likes <laughs> she's just really kind and it's presented in a way that's kind of constructive, I guess. Like yeah. she always sees the best in people and I really like it. I also love how like brave she is yes she just oh runs man. straight into danger being like someone's got to do it yeah and even when she gets scared she's kind of still trying to be rational like mm. in the novelization when she's running away from the mutants she kind of stops and goes it doesn't make any sense to keep running deeper into these caves <laughs> i was concerned that she might end up getting radiation poisoning because there's a lot of radiation in this serial <laughs> yeah hopefully uh, the doctor can do something about that yeah we have to hope so obviously they don't have any anti-radiation gloves um no. <laughs> which is what's what we really need here yeah it's what we need to go back to the daleks we need to get some of those gloves what can i say <laughs> um yeah we'll talk more about joe uh when we get to the wife city section <laughs> i've already said i enjoy her outfit very much i think it's fairly practical which is always good she, uh, she has some quite heely shoes though but they're like they're not yeah. stiletto heels they're chonky heels yeah she's she's wearing a work outfit she's got yeah. to her job as an assistant i guess <laughs> I, I just enjoy her very much. I was sad at the lack of Brig at the very beginning of this episode. I feel like it's he could just have cameoed, the you know. And, they could yeah. have, he could have cameoed at some point. I think it would have been cute, but I get it. Maybe Nicholas Courtney was busy, but eventually we'll get to some Brigadier and I will be Can't very excited wait. about it. because love, love him. Brig. Yes. All right. On your knees, Doctor. All right. Uh, our first entry for the... Uh, LGBT hype section is an image from the TARDIS wiki of when Guy transcends into the final form, which is just the effect is literally a rainbow it's on so good. his body. Like, <laughs> it's so good. There's so many rainbows in this episode. It's <laughs> it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Um, and lots of affirming rainbows as well, which are the best yeah. sort. The negative fact that Joe is the only woman in this entire story means that uh, I personally can headcanon <laughs> that the Salonians are a male-only society and or they change gender at the point of trans transcension into the next phase of reality. Do trans... Yeah, so we have some accidental trans rep, but... We do... We, we, we have some potentially accidental trans rep. As I say, he becomes kind of this... I feel like at this point there was a view of um, aliens as this kind of genderless... Or like, which is why they are know. defaultly portrayed as men. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't even really know where I'm going with that. I might have to find a, like an article to link. But certainly things like Close Encounter of the Third Kind or whatever, I think that's later. Or Space Odyssey where it's all like really weird and trippy. Like it was getting into this era where the idea of ascending to another plane becomes this genderless experience, mm. I guess. Um, I like your, your next point a lot as well. Stubbsy and Cotton were boyfriends, actually. Yeah, they spend a lot of time together. Mm-hmm. Uh, They're and... very close. <laughs> yes. And I put here the, the quote about violence and male intimacy, but instead of Reservoir Dogs, it's Stubbsy dying from getting <laughs> shot in the butt. Um, I had to ask a friend to send me the quote, but I was sent it, which is... Yeah, okay, mm-hmm. so Kent L. Britnell said, In the war film, a soldier can hold his buddy as long as his buddy is dying on the battlefield. In the western, Butch Cassidy can wash the Sundance kid's naked flesh as long as it is wounded. In the boxing film, a trainer can rub the well-developed torso and sinewy back of his protégé as long as it is bruised. In the crime film, a mob lieutenant can embrace his boss like a lover as long as he is riddled with bullets. Violence makes the homoeroticism of many male genres invisible. It is a structural mechanism of plausible deniability. There you go. That's, That's some brilliant. It's really good, and I can definitely apply it to Stubbsy getting shot in the butt because then Cotton like cradles his head yeah, like, it's, against it's his chest. Very sensitive as well. Yeah, it's a really nice moment, and I like how much Cotton gets to do in this story. Like, obviously, we've mentioned he's a Jamaican actor. He was cast race blind mm-hmm. as Cotton, um, and he just gets a lot to do. He has probably the most lines of most of the secondary characters. Uh, and one of those things that he gets to do is cradle Stubbsy. So there we are. Mm-hmm. So we have um, our interracial boyfriends. Yes. And I do like the Doctor and Sondergaard flirting through research. I like. <laughs> I think that's the only I, way three knows how to flirt. Yeah, definitely. I really like um, Sondergaard's whole look. It's he's kind of orange. Yeah, he's kind of like in quotation marks gone native because the Mutts have brought him clothing, right? So he's wearing the Salonian clothing. He's got loads of beads. He looks like a hippie. He's bold. He has a vague kind of Dutch accent question mark. <laughs> like it all just adds up to a very gay aura. Um, yeah. And I really like him. I think he's great. Yes. Uh, He's just, I don't know, that that's kind of the, the gay content of the serial is that the whole thing exudes a gay energy. Yes, <laughs> part of, of that is because there's no chance for it to be straight, but also the rainbow trans beings. Yeah. Even Joe and Kai's dynamic isn't particularly portrayed as romantic at all. Like, no, they're not kind of at running all. Around it's and... very platonic. It's also a delight yeah. to see that sort of thing being portrayed as platonic, because if that were modern Who, it wouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there are, obviously, we'll get to it, there are criticisms to be made of the episode, but I think that it has, like, a really, I don't know, like, a really nice dynamic between the characters who mm. are, like, our good characters. Yeah, they there's all a proper, like, fellowship. Together. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. good. Um, right. Oh, sure. Lots of people. And there's a woman! A woman. A woman? Hey! It's time we're on the bus to Wife City. I'm pressing the bell and we arrive at Jo hey. Grant. We've already talked about her a bit, but here are the reasons that we want to wife Jo. <laughs> her outfit. Yes. Incredible. Her entire aesthetic. On with point. The ma- she's got loads of mascara on as well. I think it's great. Like her, her hair lower looks lash great. line. Her lower lash line is insane. Her hair looks great. She's got a great fringe. Yep. She's so cute. Like as far as I'm aware, she never goes to 70s with the outfits, which I like 70s aesthetics, but, you know, sometimes it gets a bit <laughs> much, a bit much. Even when she's wearing like a big blue furry coat in the Three Doctors, oh, I'm like, that so suits cozy. you, Joe. You yeah. rock. Like, her sense of humour is great. She mm-hmm. and the Doctor have a great back and forth. And I wish I was married to Joe uh, <laughs> instead of 
the Welsh guy from the Green Dead. <laughs> Uh, she's very kind. Uh, I'm obsessed with her and have been for years now. I've, you know, the first ever serial I watched had Joe in it, so presumably I imprinted on her like a baby duck clay. <laughs> and now, many years later. <laughs> As a four-year-old, and 20 years later, here I am. Yes. I adore her. I don't understand why anybody wouldn't like her. I love how the producers were basically said, you need someone who's less clever than Liz. And they were like, well, fuck you. We're going to give you a different sort of intelligence. Yeah, and... like she's she's less academically intelligent than Liz, right? But she gets it. She knows yeah, what's she's going so on. She can. She's smart. Yeah, she can read it, situations so well. Even yeah. when, like, at the end of the bit where the doctor's like, "I think my assistant's feeling a bit faint," and she's like, "Who me?" <laughs> <laughs> um, like that one's more played for comedy. But I think that she really does. Like, she's so good at knowing what's going on, being she able can to read kind a room. of. And yeah, she's got she lots can, of personal intelligence. She can manage the doctor very well as well. Which is what he needs. <laughs> he does need a bit of yeah. managing. Um, and I really like when she escapes the handcuffs um, <laughs> and pretends to faint so she can escape them properly. And when she relays the urgent message to Hyperion without any... Like, Cotton is like, wait, what do I say? Which is like <laughs> me every time we start the podcast and I have to do the intro. <laughs> you did great um, today. Yeah, I was I was good today, but I'm learning. That's the important thing. Um, we do want to say it's good that she's so good because she's the only woman. She's the yeah, only, only female woman. character. No, no women in the background. It is yeah. um, notable. Yes. Uh, as I've said in the doc and previously, imagine the power of lesbian Kai. And Aim has said, why would you tempt me with this? Why would you tempt me with this? It's now all I want. All I have to do is write some fan fiction for it and no one will read it because... <laughs> I'll read it. <laughs> Thank Please. you. I'll have one reader and one yes. kudos. I'll be like, yes. <laughs> Worthwhile. Um, yeah. So I'm proposing marriage to Jigoro right now. <laughs> I love this. Um... Yeah. Would you like to join me as... as Honestly, yes, I would love to. Yeah. Let's be in a polyamorous marriage with Joe Grant. It'll be great. Right. Uh, <laughs> next up, we have AIM with Behind the Scenes. Today's science fiction so often becomes tomorrow's science fact. Hello, welcome to Behind the Scenes. Uh, the Mutants was broadcast in April and May of 1972. Um, Barry Letts had the idea of the mutants and compared them, as we mentioned earlier, to the caterpillars, through their cocoons, to butterflies. Um, Christopher Barry had um, previously worked on the demons and was super glad to be coming back to the show. Yeah, he's the director, um, right? Yes. So it was obviously very intentionally political. Yeah. Um, and the allegories are obviously historical about Britain withdrawing from India in 1947 mm -hmm. um, because we, we can't afford empire anymore, nearly yeah. being bankrupt after the Second World War. And then I've put in uh, a couple of contemporary empire commonwealth issues. So in 1971, the British Empire granted independence to Bahrain, Qatar and the Arab Emirates. And then the year after this, there was a Northern Irish sovereignty referendum. So like the mm. Scottish independence referendum a couple of years ago. So that's kind of the contemporary Interesting. empire situation. I think in the previous season, we'd had the Curse of Peloton, which is um, very much a joining the EU metaphor. So it's... Oh, oh man, I'm excited to watch it in that oh, case. Oh, <laughs> so good. So Terence Dix, who was he the producer Ugh. at the time? Yeah, um, I think he was a showrunner with show Barry Letts. Yeah, he wasn't massively keen on this empire perspective. Mm -hmm. 
he was very very pro empire and um in the documentary about the making of the episode on the dvd he said that he thinks the world would be better if we still had the british empire look at africa asia and the rest of the world if the brits were in charge it would all be running smoothly <laughs> um, which me as a person disagrees with yeah, um, and also that reality feelings. disagrees with. Look uh, at how Britain is coping with everything right now. I don't yeah. think we would be making anywhere any better. Look at how the British Empire was run for its Awful. entire existence. Like, yeah. it's such a drinking the Kool Aid situation, yeah. right? Where people who grew up with the Empire like absorbed all of this messaging about it from schools, mm-hmm. where so many of them were pro Empire, and we had, you know, like these representations of it where we were like oh these savages can't handle yeah. running things themselves and it's like oh my god and even do- like because of education within empire the picture that was painted internationally of britain was an absolute farce yeah it that's what i mean it's just not representative of british life and yet that was what was <laughs> not needed. to get too contemporarily political but as a primary school teacher the current history curriculum doesn't do much for this either bloody hell <sighs> i mean Back I do when my I was best in school, there was very, very little. One could hope that it would get a bit better. Essentially, it's skipped in the history curriculum contemporarily. And, and there was no national curriculum at this point in British history. So whatever school's taught, it probably wasn't going to be, mm. hey, did you know that empire is bad? <laughs> I mean, most of what I learned about it wasn't until I did my master's degree about publishing history and book history Ooh. and the way that media was existed within empire and what was very published and what wasn't. Fascinating. That was yeah. very much like the the last scales dropping from my eyes. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll really probably have uh, again some kind of academic links in the show notes yeah. if you want to read more about why Empire is bad. In case this is yes. something that, understandably, you might have missed discussion of as someone who like like it's it's it's, it's really that easy to miss a lot. Yeah. Like yeah. unless you're in a certain you know sphere, Circle. you might have missed it. So please educate yourself about it because it's really important that we. Don't repeat yep. things like the. Are we the baddies? <laughs> okay, back to Terence Dix. Uh, anyway, so where that was I can, I so that I know where I'm going. Yeah, he wrote the the novelization of this episode, which excises mm-hmm. some of the more overt references and parallels between the Salonians and contemporary uh, colonial countries or colonies. Yeah. Um, when this episode aired, there was still segregation in South Africa. Um, I think the yes. apartheid ended in 1994. So yes, I was alive so... and there was still apartheid, which I am young. I'm 26. I'm young. Yes, this is the introduction of the fabled historical context drop, which is yes. my favourite thing. You can't rewrite history. Not one line. Uh, so I did my GCSE coursework on South Africa and apartheid. I had to re-research a lot of this, but just to have some context for how this story parallels apartheid, I think mm-hmm. would be interesting. Because it's not just the idea of colonialism and viewing the Salonians as an inferior race, right? It's also yeah. the way that the marshal attempts to uh, further his control of mm. Solos through his actions. Yep. Um, and it's very much what is person, what is actual political move. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also um, what was going on at the time and how people might have felt about this episode and about the issues that were going on. So uh, at this point in history... The UN had discussed and condemned apartheid as something, but they also felt that they could not actually interfere because it was a strictly South African issue and the UN doesn't interfere in internal politics of countries. 
But it's very much obviously not uh, anyway. Yeah, which that is might also be the, contempor- the bright light of history being shined on it. Yeah, definitely. Um, but they did uh, recommend sanctions, economic sanctions, and trade sanctions against South Africa, which were optional but later became mandatory after a while after the broadcast of this serial. So. Uh, many countries adopted it, but the UK did not adopt it because it was the Cold War and it was felt that if uh, war broke out in Africa, then South Africa would be a very valuable ally to have. And also, they had gold mines and mm-hmm. the UK wanted to be able to trade with South Africa. Uh, this was the government's idea at the time. I believe at the time that it was recommended they were a conservative government. Um Domestic support for sanctions was very popular and it was an individual choice that was taken by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And it was a big election issue in 1964. Labour said that they were pro-sanctions, but when they actually went into government, they decided not to do it. Yep. Classic classic electioneering of them. But yeah, and they also, going back to the trade routes thing, they wanted an African ally with money and power independent of them because they destroyed the economy and culture of so much of the African continent through colonialism. Mm. South Africa, uh, the whole thing with the... uh, South Africa used to be a British colony way back in the day because of the Boer War and all this stuff. And then they relinquished it and it was under Dutch control and then it was under uh, control of like the Dutch South African government, which was all white, obviously. Mm-hmm. By uh, 1975, so a while after the broadcast of this, Equity, the British Actors' Union, blocked the export of any programme featuring a member of Equity to South Africa. And it is mandatory to have membership of Equity as mm-hmm. a British working actor. So they didn't get any Doctor Who. Which is this was when, a yeah, loss. This was when... This was when South Africa got television in 1975. Oh my god, um, okay, interesting. Or at least uh, got their own, I guess, TV broadcast. I imagine they could have had the technology, but not the infrastructure. Mm. Also around this time, uh, there was a lot of, for the duration of apartheid, the Dutch government or the South African Dutch government was really trying to move black South Africans out of white areas to properly cement segregation. So they created this thing called Bantu stands where they were moving, I guess, the people they viewed as inferior out of the cities into, like, essentially slums. One of them was called um, Soweto for Southwest Township, where there was uh, quite a lot of political uprising and later quite an infamous uh, massacre. That was an impetus for a lot more international condemnation of South Africa. So this, when this serial was broadcast, it was kind of between the point where people were beginning to be really... Um, understanding of the role of apartheid in South Africa and before the UK government was willing to condemn it. So it was kind of... The the show wasn't reflecting attitudes. It was kind of being deliberately more left-wing than society was at the time. So mm-hmm. it's nice to see Doctor Who being kind of forward-thinking in that way. Yeah, yeah, progressive. So that's my understanding of the situation. Um, please do read more about it because it's been a while since I did my... <laughs> mm-hmm. It's been a while since I did my History GCSE. But it's a really interesting part of history and I'm really glad I got to study it because I think a lot of people don't know a lot about Oh, I don't know much about it at all. period of history. And it was very interesting to study it and then not study British Empire yeah. in other places. I think that would have been a really interesting piece of context Comparison to have. Work, really. So thank you to the British education system <laughs> and edXL. Uh, on a sort yeah. of related note, which I don't know how relevant this is, um, my ex's parents will frequently talk about the boycotting of South African products during the 80s and 90s. And yeah. All, they, they were very like radical leftists, I'd say, and talk a lot about <laughs> the, the action being taken. 
yeah, British activism going all the way back to um, anti-slavery things in the 1800s, a lot of it has been about personal choice and boycotting. So mm. like the sugar boycott all the way back in the 1800s and then moving forwards, there was a move for boycotting from like the 50s and 60s, but it wasn't taken up as a big thing until 80s, more, yeah, more atrocities were perpetuated by the government like Mm -hmm. the anc was banned in like 1960 and that was when they started being more militant and nelson mandela helped found the more militant wing but i do recommend researching it as i say because it's it's a really important thing to know about when considering the development of uh, like politics in south africa yeah i think how that it's so recent and it's still impacting things today so it's yes definitely worth knowing about we can drop some links in the show notes there's a historical context drop we finally got to do one and uh i'm glad to get to talk about it yep we'll have lots more like that in the future yay i hope as doctor's doctor who's always been political yes it has so Stubbs and Cotton were surprising casts. Um, neither of them were expected. Um, Stubbs was meant to be quite RP and wasn't. Cotton was written as a <laughs> Cockney, but they didn't really change his dialogue when yeah. they hired was it Rick James. Yeah, Rick James. Rick James. Not that Rick James, but a different Rick James. <laughs> and they could have changed Cotton's name, so it wouldn't yeah. be a black man called Cotton. I think alluding because... to the Cotton. Uh, yeah. in America. I think because uh, the history of British slavery is more associated with sugar, so people might not have thought of it at the time, yep. whereas now we have a more international understanding of slavery. Yeah, that's... They still could have changed history. it, though. They could have changed it, and they didn't, but they still yeah. gave work to a black actor. Yeah, and it's not a stereotypical and racist no. role, so yeah. there you go. Improvement from the team <laughs> of the Cybermen. <laughs> we love to see some growth. Yeah, which was only four years before I think uh, five years, maybe. 1960, Se- 1967, yeah. Yeah, but then this was um, 1972, so yeah, five years. So the sky base was designed to be bright and modern looking based on mock-ups of proposed NASA space stations, and some of it were reused in the horns of Naimon, yes. which <laughs> is a favourite. Really excited um, to watch. Yes. Um, parts were also filmed in a quarry in Kent, so tick that off your bingo card i'm genuinely dancing in my seat every time about the quarries i love the quarries so much um and the cave parts were filmed in chiselhurst caves and they put some like designs and artwork on the walls which are still there in the caves which means that we need to go on a doctor who pilgrimage as soon as it is safe to be in the same place yes on the DVD for the Mutants, there's also a documentary called Race Against Time, which is narrated by Noel Clark, who played Mickey in the new series, which is definitely worth watching. It talks about some of the aspects of the story we've already discussed and then goes into detail looking at the history of Doctor Who, how it's interacted with the race, why it's relevant, why it continues to be relevant, and that balance between celebrating how far society has come and acknowledging just how far we still have to go. Would highly, highly recommend picking the DVD up just for that documentary. Yeah, I'm really excited to watch it. I need to get my own copy of the DVD, but I am psyched. It's There's a good. clip of it on YouTube as well, like an intro clip, which nice. talks about uh, the mutants a little bit. So there we go, mm-hmm. just for reference. Now we'd all go, except Miss Shaw. Oh, just a minute, I'm not gonna miss all no, the No, Miss Shaw. Have you never heard of female emancipation? Liz. This time, I think he's right. 
now we come into the critique segment, which was a struggle because we both really liked it. <laughs> uh, and then we remembered that critique is not just about what's bad in a serial, but also discussing elements of it. Yes. And we did have some criticisms when we thought about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I think we've already mentioned only one woman in the entire thing. At Which least is just... She's ugh. well done. She's not underused. Her portrayal is not yeah. sexist, but the fact that she's the only woman is. It's just such a fact that any of the other characters could have been replaced with a woman and, and made no, no difference nothing to the would change. Kai could have been a woman. Stubbs or Cotton could have been a woman. Like, And then you could talk about like the gendered politics of all and it would be interesting, but mm. uh, it was written by two men in the 1970s and they didn't think of it. Because if a woman's in the thing, you have to justify why. Whereas yeah. men are the default. Yeah, as the same with any form of like diversity representation in media. The more diverse you're behind the scenes, the more diverse your product will be. Yeah, just because it occurs to a mm-hmm. diverse group to include diverse people. Yep. Uh, I've put what's up with the Nazi angle, which is just that I think it adds to kind of the allegory in the sense that it removes it one step from a direct allegory for apartheid, which I guess is, in a way, interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, it's just interesting, because like, at one point, there genuinely is a just-following-orders reference, right? So mm-hmm. the Doctor is very dismissive of Jaeger saying that, oh, I didn't want to, and he's like, oh, just-following-orders then. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if that's to codify it as, these are the baddies. This is a really easy media shorthand for evil. I guess. I'm not sure what the media landscape was like in the 70s as regards, like, fascism. Like, direct Mm. references to it, I mean. Because I think that even when they talked about the Daleks in Daleks, like, as a codified fascist, right? I think that that was quite forward-thinking of specifically saying fascism's bad, right? Like, I don't know, that's something that I'll have to, again, link some articles about. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's interesting that this serial is so so left-wing in its uh, ideology. I really like it. Yes, I would strongly agree. I imagine that's where a lot of its criticism comes from, because it is so left-wing. Yay! <laughs> just, just, just saying. Love fandom. Yeah. Um, I've put the... I find it interesting how the serial doesn't condemn violence as protest, like, per se, but it's still against Varen's perspective of violence is revenge for personal suffering. I sort of talked about this earlier, but I I just think that the nuance of that is really interesting to include because, mm. like, the Doctor is... Uh, he kills Jaeger with the explosion in mm-hmm. the laboratory. Like, it's shown that violence against colonisers is not bad in itself, which at the time was probably quite controversial because this was when... Um, things were becoming more violent in yeah. colonial struggles. Um, yeah, there were a couple or of... More, more report, reporting about violence was becoming more common. I would say it's always been, you know, That's there's always been reason. violent struggle against empire and good. Good. Stuff. I've also put that it didn't really drag for a six-parter, but there was quite a lot of back and of to and froing from the sky base to the planet's surface. So wondering if it would be a bit simpler to be shorter, but what would be cut? Because all of it adds something. Yeah. There's very little fat to chew. Maybe they could really break format and do a five-parter. <laughs> Which I like. I like um, that. Yeah, I think I think if it was four parts and you cut something, it would become a less interesting story. I think that it is a, a rare story where the six parts are completely justified by the content. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Which doesn't often happen. Yeah, even with the slower scenes, it's still all building towards what's happening. And I did read that the writer's previous story was a four-parter and it was like a a mess, like a bloated (laughs) mess. So maybe they even requested six parts so they would have time to develop all of these different points. It it was Bob Barker and Dave Martin. Yeah, so they've written a couple of serials, I think. Yeah, their previous um, one was The Claws of Axis. Ooh, that one's got the master in it, so it has. like. Um, <laughs> I remember enjoying it and finding the ca- the monster design really weird and. <laughs> I just enjoy so. anything the master's in. Yeah, completely valid. Completely valid. This is the point where uh, I mentioned it a little bit. I said I'd found somewhere some views of the previous episodes. I found those on Gallifrey Base, where I made an yeah. account this week. Yeah. Um, Gallifrey Base if you don't know, is like the big forum for Doctor Who fans. I went on there because I wanted to find some differing opinions about this serial because it does not have a very good reputation in Doctor Who fandom. In 2009, it got... It was 182nd out of 200 stories then televised in a Doctor Who magazine poll, which is insane. It was the second lowest rated third Doctor story after The Time Monster, which I haven't seen. I don't think I've seen that (laughs) one either. Yeah, so I went on there and I searched up the mutants and I found like more differing opinions about it. Uh, my favourite was a guy who said, well, I liked it, but... And then his signature on the forum was, but I liked the twin dilemma. <laughs> Which we're discussing soon. <laughs> we are discussing it so very soon. Um, so my understanding is people who've watched it for the first time recently seem to really like it. People who have liked, who watched it on broadcast and since were very divided and they really didn't like Rick James's acting. Other people's acting, they were extremely divided on whether it was good or not. Mm. Lots of people think it's too long or too slow. Uh, and a lot of people think that it was probably better served by being shown weekly than by the modern kind of binge watching all of it mm. at once. It is quite a lot I, of information yeah. to process in two hours. Yeah, it's quite chewy. Um, and it does seem to have had a bit of a critical reappraisal where people were like, well, I heard it was bad, but I watched it again or um, I watched it for the first time or I gave it another chance and I really liked it this time. So it does seem to have had a bit of a critical reappraisal, although people still, there's still definitely a view that it's not very good, whether like yep. not as bad as people used to think it was. I mean, I um, heard from my housemate Jill that it was not very good. So enjoy that one. And I was like, I, I have enjoyed it. <laughs> To which he said, oh, maybe I just haven't seen it in such a long time that I've forgotten. Maybe I should rewatch it. So Yeah. We are going to start a revolution of people liking the mutants. <laughs> it's our yeah. purpose of the podcast now. Um Yeah, this is now this is now the mutants podcast only. <laughs> <laughs> we will discuss it every week. Yeah, we're doing the mutant minute where we discuss a minute of the mutants every episode. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. Right, so that's our critique section. Uh, Now we move into the expanded universe. Yes. Let me get this straight. A thing that looks like a police box standing in a junkyard, it can move anywhere in time and space? Yes. Quite so. But that's ridiculous. So, the third Doctor is very popular in the expanded universe, reasonably. In the 90s, they actually did record some audios with John Pertwee and uh, Elizabeth Sladen. I did listen to one of them because my mum had it on cassette I could not figure out what's going on. <laughs> um, they also introduced a companion called Jeremy. I'm obsessed with the concept <laughs> of a companion called Jeremy. I don't know anything about him. <laughs> but I just love the idea very much. Um, 
the uh, modern Big Finish audios, they did companion chronicles where people would obviously mention what the third Doctor was up to, but he wouldn't be voiced because sadly John Pertwee passed away in 1996. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, they have the third Doctor adventures where Tim Trelaw, who was on the Campaign Trail podcast... Lovely, lovely Tim. He plays the third Doctor now. He does a... I wouldn't say it's technically an impression. It's more like an evocation of the third Doctor's kind of vocal mannerisms yeah. rather than like a strict one-to-one John Pertwee impression. Which is probably the better to... way to do it, I think. Yeah, definitely. Because if you're doing... Unless you're John Coleshaw, your direct impression is not going to be as good. <laughs> they also have John Coleshaw playing uh, the Brigadier, which is why I mention him specifically. I think I actually do like this trend of recasting classic characters with new actors because it means that the character legacy can live on and it still yeah. respects the actors by having them as like the cover image right where i think there's something about the doctor who fandom which is inherently respectful of its legacy yeah definitely and i think that it's they had that already beginning with the five doctors where they recast william hartnell Mm. um like it's always been baked into the show that it's more about i guess respecting the portrayal rather than necessarily having to have that character baked in amber and never change or i wonder if that's because the doctor is an inherently changing character so yeah. if change can happen, it can happen in a already designated space. Yeah, definitely. And wh- and also the fact that they still use the actors who are alive and willing to yes. appear. So it's kind of like a good mix. Katie Manning, who plays Joe jo Grant, she's our wife. amazing. Uh, she's in a lot of audios, including yeah. one for Torchwood that's a sequel to The Green Death. <laughs> Cute. Oh, exciting. I really want to get that. They're also, this is irrelevant, but they're releasing a Torchwood audio this year that has Yanto, Jack and Ten. Oh, so no. excited. Oh, I'm so excited. Um, I assume it's set between season two and Children of Earth. But this isn't a Torchwood podcast, so I'll leave that for now. <laughs> but yeah, so she's in a lot of audios. I haven't listened to a lot of them. I need to get into listening to classic, classic Doctor audios. I've listened to a couple of the Second Doctor Companion monocles, but I haven't got really into one, two, and three adventures. Mm. I'm going to try listening to them while I make things. I do a lot yeah. of hand crafting. So. Yeah. so he's also... The Third Doctor is very popular in books. He was in 10 past Doctor Adventures out of 74. So that's pretty much like the ratio you want. There was also <laughs> an 11th where there was an alternate three in it, but I didn't count it because... <laughs> It's like, okay. oh man, there's a, there's a lot going on. Basically, Mel goes to an alternate universe where they fight, where she finds a third Doctor who never escapes his exile. So he's still Ooh. poodling around on Earth. Um, oh, that's cute. I like that. But yeah, I've got all the titles just because I think they're great. His first ever one was called The Devil Goblins from Neptune. And it was the first ever past Doctor adventure to be published. <laughs> just oh, obsessed wow. with the title. Um, kind of want that on my tombstone. Yeah, <laughs> I've put three question marks. There aren't three question marks in the title but that's how i'd like it um yeah yeah, yeah. Um, there were a couple of others there was one called the wages of sin that had both joe and liz in very exciting and then there was an island there was island of death which had jeremy in it i was really excited (laughs) island of death is brilliant yeah and then there was uh last of the gatorine which i've read about half of many years ago it was written by mark gatiss so linked to the new Mm. series with that one i remember it being pretty good there's a lot of stuff about planes I was kind of reading it like my dad would love this. Um, yeah. Uh, and then I've already sort of mentioned the novelization. It doesn't add a lot to the story. There's a couple of fun, like, internal monologue bits. Like, the doctor thinks typical bureaucrat to himself at one point. <laughs> There's a bit where the marshal says, a booby trap and you were the booby, Jaeger, uh, which they cut out. They just said a booby trap. I was very sad. <laughs> 
There's also a specific note about the temperature of the planet increasing, and I couldn't remember if they'd included that in the show or not, but I thought it was interesting because the novelization was published in 1977 after they discovered the hole in the ozone layer, which was to do with oh, global warming. Interesting. Uh, okay, that's cool. So I thought that was interesting at least, because the novelization was by Terence Dick, so I don't know how much intentional progressiveness he would include in anything. Mm. Um but it was enjoyable. Also, I liked the description of Sondergaard's face lighting up at the sound of the only thing that really interested him, the study of Solos and its mysteries. <laughs> That's it was very really cute. charming. Yeah. Um, and then my one in-depth thing I'm going to talk about this week is from Short Trips, A Universe of Terror. Yes. Uh, this one has a happier ending, so that's good. Oh, good. Um... It is, and I chose this one uh, partly because it was quite good and also because, just for AIM, it's set in Oxford. That's where I am right now. <laughs> Very mysterious. So <laughs> I've chosen uh, Losing Track of Time by Juliet E. McKenna, uh, which is three and Joe go to Oxford because they need to find... They're like finding some research for something that the doctor is up to. <laughs> uh, they go to the library. I don't think it's... Pati- I don't think it's specifically... Uh, is it the Ashmolean in Oxford? Um, we have several. Yeah, the library think... or yeah, it's it's a library. The Bodleian, uh, the Radcliffe yeah. Camera, yeah. probably the Bodleian. It... Bodleian. They don't specifically say which one it is, uh, okay. but um, I I couldn't remember which one is at which out of Oxbridge. I'm sorry, I'm uh, Ashmolean's the museum. It is here, but it's not ah, a library. Ah, there you go. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so. The, the plot is they go to research something there and they discover some someone uh, has been prematurely aged to death by like decades in the stacks and they're like, well, this is weird. Ooh, um, that's also the sort of... of thing that could happen here. I've seen people <laughs> age beyond their years doing PhDs. It made me think, um, recently I watched the tractate Midoth, the uh, ghost story for Christmas with Sasha Dewan that was Ooh. written by Mark Gatiss. And it has, uh, it's set, uh, I think uh, I think M.R. James was a uh, don at, he was either Oxford or Emma Cambridge. M.R. James was Cambridge. Not, yeah, Cambridge, pardon me. But it had the same vibe, mm. like, because it was set in the stacks and Sasha Dewan has to, to go and collect up. the tractate Midoth, which as it turns out, is uh god what is it? it it's it's not relevant to this story but it just reminded me i had the same vibe and i was i was happy because it reminded me that sasha dewan exists and i love sasha dewan um, i'm literally just texting joel saying we need to watch it so yeah it's not get yourself amazing. a housemate who's in love with sasha dewan <laughs> it's saying. not amazing but he's good in it <laughs> so uh they they go through they find this person who's been probably truly aged and they're like well what on earth is going on with this and then um they continue exploring and they find uh like joe sees this creature and she describes it to the doctor and doctor's like oh i know what's going on (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah oh they're investigating a piece of metal for the brigadier like an alien metal i'm just gonna uh and they they find this person who has died they also previously found someone who uh walks into a wall outside the library and they're like well what's going on with that and uh it's clear that uh, even though he'd only been into the stacks for a few minutes, he's aged by like a few days and he's dehydrated. So mm. clearly something's going on with time dilation in the stacks. I love a bit of uh, time dilation. <laughs> um, they, they see two aliens and the Doctor recognises them as Tinnakers and explains that they steal knowledge, ruining civilization. So oh. they, they steal books. So they go to the library on, this, on a particular planet and they steal the books and they sell the information to other planets. So for example... They could steal a book about nuclear science and sell it to um, a planet that doesn't have it yet. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, to uh, prematurely accelerate that that 
planet's um, nuclear development. The thing is that they don't just steal the book, they steal the entire memory of that knowledge from the civilization they take it from. So they're That's taking such all of these concept. Yeah, they're taking all these books and the civilization would be set back by, you know, like hundreds or potentially thousands of years, depending on what knowledge that they found. So they have to stop these aliens. The doctor has to distract the aliens because he knows they'll recognise them as a time lord, which is always fun. He's there like, <laughs> What are you doing? <laughs> He's like, Well, what's all this then? Uh, Joe takes the box of books and heads for the exit, but the stacks are no longer working properly. Like the the this the aliens have kind of turned it into this labyrinth where she's basically like, Well, I just need to get away. I just That's... need to get away from wherever they are and they won't be able to take the knowledge. Um the Doctor was unable to shut down the device yet, but Joe is going to be a decoy uh, by basically luring the Tinnikers away so that the Doctor can go and shut down the device properly. That's very um, cool. And then he manages to uh, wire the device to explode, and then he goes to get Joe and they escape. It takes them... Uh, it, it's difficult because time has started to slow and it's difficult to move, but... The device explodes and the box starts emptying itself of like hundreds of books. <laughs> and the Doctor and Joe leave the pile of books before they can be confronted by an irate librarian, which is on, on brand. Concept. Yeah, yeah, on brand. They always leave before they can be interrogated by anybody. <laughs> and they decide that the Brigadier's piece of metal can wait and go for coffee instead. So, oh, brilliant. Not as horrifying as any of the other ones I've featured from Universe of Terry so far. It's just a cute little romp with a little bit of horror in it. So I like that. It's also very Oxford from the sounds of it. Just all the concepts are. Yeah, it's have lovely. A and it's, sense of it. It's kind of a near future thing. Buses are no longer red. Uh, they see a police <laughs> box outside the Natural History Museum because they've landed like on the opposite side of the entrance. <laughs> so now there's just two police boxes there. <laughs> Um, which oh. I thought was quite sweet. It's 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 a good short story. I really enjoy, I really am enjoying working through a universe of terrors. It's kind of like it's <laughs> it's a lot of fucked up if true stories, and then sometimes it's just a Doctor Who adventure with one slightly creepy element, and I think that that's uh, very fun. Yeah, I've only read a couple of them so far, and they are good. They are good. So that's my expanded universe segment. I recommend that you Thank read you. that, uh, and I recommend you watch the serial instead of reading the novelization because it's not as good. So now we move on to our rankings for the week. We begin with X of the Week. Aim, do you have Yay. an X of the Week? My X of the Week is going to be Rainbow Caves of the Week for the Ooh. obvious Rainbow Caves. Mainly because it just seems super soothing and I am in it, need of that at the moment. I yeah. just want to be in a rainbow cave where I can't quite tell what's going on, but I'm not worried <laughs> about it. And you're getting severely irradiated, but it's fine. <laughs> so what is, the world has done this to me. <laughs> it is a beautiful like room it's described as being like a cathedral like you're standing in the middle of a diamond in a cathedral it sounds yeah. wonderful um my x of the week is incorrect interpretation of an ancient text of the week with <laughs> fire earth air water it's i love it and aim has correctly noted that yes. the four nations used to exist in harmony but everything but changed everything changed when, when the, the fire, fire tablet attacked um, <laughs> it's very good Yes. Uh, all right. So uh, that's our X of the week. If you have your own X of the week, please tweet it at us at PolaritiPod. Always mm -hmm. forget to mention that, but please do. <laughs> uh, next part is Six Degrees of Blake Seven. Insert the, the, the bit. Um, this one was really easy because Rick James, <laughs> who plays Cotton, was in Warlord season four, episode 12 of Blake Seven, which is the penultimate episode. Um, 
since this was so easy, I made sure to have a look at the trivia on IMDb and I found out that um, the scenes on Zondor were filmed at a shopping centre in Guildford. <laughs> Which can be quite a bleak place to be. It can be quite a bleak place to be. Um, I haven't watched that far in Blake 7 yet, so I don't know a great deal about it, but I just enjoy it. Apparently it was the last appearance of Servalan in the show, so she wasn't in the finale. Very exciting. Mm. Very easy, unlike most of the other researchers <laughs> for Six Reviews of Blake 7. And finally for our rankings, we have our overall ranking. Ooh, probably oh. ought to pull up my spreadsheet. Uh, well, we have to say what we thought of it out of five first. Oh, we did. Um, I would probably rate this um, four unknown objects sent by the Time Lords out of five. Oh, nice. <laughs> four... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> four illicit footballs out of five. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's my one. Uh, yeah, so, and then we put it in our overall ranking of uh, what we've watched so far. I honestly think it's the best. <laughs> like, I really, really liked it. I'd probably put it below the film, just because I had ah, more fun with the film. Interesting. My thing is, I think that as a story, The Mutants hangs together a lot better than the film. Oh, it's, it love, definitely does. You're not wrong. I love the film extremely much, but I think that <laughs> The Mutants might be objectively like a better story, and certainly a more important story to be told, as it were. Mm. Uh, not that I'm going to necessarily get into worthiness later on when I'm ranking Doctor Who stories, <laughs> uh, but I, I just really, really enjoyed it. So we cool. are at an impasse. Ooh. Where are we going to put it? Go on then, let's put it first. Yes! So our ranking now goes The Mutants, The Film, The Keeper of Truck, and The Keys of Marinus, and The Tomb of the Cybermen. We are now... Oh, there's 160-ish classic stories, and we've <laughs> done five. So we are... <laughs> <laughs> Soon we will have a definitive list. We are 140th of the way through. So 2.5%. Um, I think. Speaking of rankings, um, next week we're going to be talking about the episode that was the lowest ranked <laughs> on the 2009 Doctor Who magazine top episodes poll. This is the worst one according to them, The Twin Dilemma. Yes! <laughs> you better bet that I bought the target novelization of this as soon as I saw it in a shop I was like I'm getting this one the cover is incredible I'm so excited to find out what's wrong with the twin dilemma as someone who unironically loves Spock's brain the original series Star Trek episode so excited I, Colin Baker's great yeah I haven't finished watching it I'm really excited but for I will. to finish watching it uh, thank you for listening yes. let me take that again would you like to do the outro this weekend? Ooh, ooh, yes, I would. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at PolaritiPod or on Tumblr at PolaritiPod.tumblr.com. Please follow us on your preferred podcast app. Tell your friends about us. Leave us a review on iTunes. And we shall see you next time. <laughs>